And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live tonight. Sorry about last night, but uh, thunderstorms and internet do not mix, certainly in New Mexico. Anyway, tonight we have an extraordinary program. I mean, I've done a lot of shows. I've done millions of shows on coast and all kinds of other outlets. I probably, I probably can say with full candor that tonight's show is going to be one for the record books because as of last Wednesday, we have passed in the old parlance of uh, the airline industry back when uh, Pan Am was flying the Pacific and uh, various long airline routes were were uh, stretched out and there was little in between where you could land. We passed what they used to call the point of no return. And that means that after what happened in the House of Representatives on Wednesday morning, stretching into past noon, has probably irrevocably changed not only American history, but history as a whole, as a planet. We're going to Look back, I think, on that hearing and mark, as I've said in a couple of uh, previous weeks here, uh, B.C. and A.D. It used to be B.C. in terms of UFOs, ufology, UAP, APNIS, uh, whatever acronym the powers that be tried to use to confuse everybody. And tonight we are definitely in A.D. and we're going to spend the next three hours providing you our dear and good audience, with absolutely irrevocable evidence that we, in fact, are in a whole new, take a bow, Stephen, paradigm, because there's so much going on. In fact, uh, it's it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's the uh, affirmation of Roddenberry's rule. Remember Roddenberry's rule when I showed him many, many years ago, Sidonia, and we spent the whole day talking about it, and looking at images and going to the commissary and having lunch and, and then going uh, back uh, uh, and, and going through more photographs. And someone says to me, it's low volume, which is it? You know, type me a message, okay? Because I'm monitoring things and they look pretty good to me here on the board. Anyway, uh, Roddenberry's rule was, after I'd shown him all of Sedoni, he said, but Dick, if this was real, it would be on television. And I've coined the term Roddenberry's rule to apply to all of this foo-foo out of the, you know, normal everyday box stuff as if it doesn't follow Roddenberry's rule, people are not going to believe it. In order to be credible these days, it's got to be on television or at the very least widely reported in social media. Well, the Wednesday night hearing or the Wednesday afternoon hearing starting in the morning and going past noon, definitely now passes the Roddenberry test because all kinds of things have exploded across Washington, across the United States, across the world, and I'm going to go through some of those. So for those of you who are new to the show, let me uh, tell you what you need to do because we have links on Skype and images and all that stuff. We call it radio with pictures. And what you want to do is go to tonight's show. You want to click on tonight's banner on the other side of midnight.com with that gorgeous shot of the U.S. Capitol taken just before sunset with that weird swirly UFO thingy 
around uh, Lady Victory, which is the statue at the very top of the Capitol against that gorgeous reddish sunset. Click on that. That will take you to our uh, um, uh, actually you have to click on. Let's see. You have to go up to the top where it says uh, Stephen Bassett and EM team, the historic July 26 hearing. Go up to that. Click on that. That will take you to the um, guest page. And on the guest page, you will see a duplicate of the banner. And that duplicate underneath, you'll see where it says uh, fast links to items. Click on my name. That will take you to my uh, radio with pictures items. Um, I have several related to the hearing in tonight's news. The first is from Fox News. UFO whistleblower testifies his life was threatened over secret alien tech retrieval. And item number two. The UFO congressional hearing was insulting to U.S. employees, a top Pentagon official says. That's the director of the so-called Arrow program in the Pentagon, which is devoted to anomaly studies now. Remember, they've gone from UFO to UAP to UAP, where the A is not aerial, it's anomalous. And some people are now going back to UFOs because it's just, well, it's what they are, you know, unidentified Flying objects started this whole whole thing like decades and decades ago. 70 plus years ago, the current flap began. Item number three, again related, is the UFO curious lawmakers are bracing for a fight over government secrets. What we clearly saw at the hearing was there is a dichotomy between those folks that are trying to get to the truth and those folks in the U.S. government who are still, I guess I didn't get the memo, trying to keep everything in the dark, keep it ambiguous, keep it confusing, keep it uh, bureaucratically mired down in red tape and protocols and all that stuff. And they're really fighting a last-ditch effort to keep the secrets. Item number four is very interesting because, as I've said on a couple of shows, I think I said it last Sunday when we have Stephen on, that when this happened, when the UFO hearing was held on Wednesday in Washington on Capitol Hill, it would be, as my grandmother would have said, Katie bar the door. Because <clears throat> everything was going to come falling out of the closet and there would be extraordinary reverberations and echoes and, and uh, resonances all throughout the world in terms of news coverage, in terms of network coverage, in terms of blogs terms of social media, in terms of everyday, so that what they used to call water cooler conversation, and all of that is coming true. And all you have to do is click on that number four link to see that uh, BuzzFeed has apparently now published uh, 13 or 14 um, UFO and alien encounters that people are now sharing. And this is only, mixing our metaphors madly, the opening of the floodgate or the tip of the iceberg, because you're going to see so much more of this now that the unthinkable, which is Washington speak, Washington representatives, Washington bureaucrats, all sat in a formal hearing where the witnesses were under oath. And remember, if you lie under oath, you go to jail. So the witnesses all were telling as close as the current legal fabric of the United States can, can guarantee it, the truth, 
and the backlash coming from the head of the Arrow program over at the um, Pentagon was very interesting because they're obviously the, the hearings as they progress, they're going to call him on the record, put him under oath, and then we're going to see who is telling the truth. This is the beginning of an extraordinarily interesting unfoldment, as Bassett has been promising us for longer than I've been. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding, Stephen. Just kidding. Okay. So let me uh, lead number five for the conversation because it's very relevant when we get into the discussion, as you're going to see. Um, and uh, let me introduce our, our panelists. First of all, we've got Stephen Bassett, who, of course, is the uh, founder and chief executive officer of Paradigm Research Group, which has been the Washington lobbying effort for so many years under his stewardship uh, to get what happened last Wednesday. And uh, I'm going to only be very brief about these bios because you can just go to the website and read them. And for most of you, you know who these people are. They've been part of our uh, assemblage on Saturdays and Sunday nights for years. Uh, we've got Barbara Honiger, who served in a very high-level government position, uh, many, including the White House as a policy analyst, special assistant to the president for domestic policy. She's director of the attorney general, or was director of the attorney general's law review at the Department of Justice, and for more than a decade was the senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, I guess, in Annapolis. And, of course, she is the co-chairman of the Board of Investigative Inquiry uh, for 9-11 Truth uh, from the Lawyers Committee. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff. She's got the first PhD in parapsychology from the JFK University there in Northern California and uh, all kinds of other credits to her, to her uh, renown. Uh, Robert Morningstar is with us. He's a civilian intelligence analyst, an investigative journalist, and a psychotherapist who is currently living in New York City. He's also deeply into photo interpretation and AI. He's an expert in Chinese. Um, he's a, a Tai Chi master. I think I'm getting, getting that right. He's a light licensed pilot, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we've got Keith Morgan with us, who, of course, used to be with Ted Koppel and is now our incredible fortune to have him as the Internet guru for the other side of midnight, as well as the other side of the news. And David Sarita is with us. And David is a polymath. He is a generalist. Um, he's got an extraordinarily interesting background. He actually does technology based on hyperdimensional physics, and we can probably get into that a little while. He's produced and scored music. Um, he's done HD jewelry. He has co-produced, directed, and edited scores of documentary films. Uh, he's written many books on these and other interesting subjects, such as Evidence the Case for NASA UFOs, um, Singularity, uh, Differentials Face-to-Face -face with Jesus Christ, and jointly with his wife, Mona Lisa's Little Secret and God's Great Pyramid. And last but not least, Ron Gerbron is with us. Ron, of course, is our resident generalist, uh, whose specialty is Martian archaeology, if there is a specialty to being a generalist. And I think with that, what I'm going to do is open the floor to everyone in the order in which I introduce them to basically talk about their reaction 
like in a minute or two, to what happened at the hearing on Wednesday morning, and then we'll take it from there. So give us your summary in a couple of minutes as to what you think happened at the hearing and what does it portend. Let's start with Stephen. Mr. Bassett. Hello. Okay, well, if Stephen's not available, let's go to Barbara. Why am can I not? Hear me? Now I can, can hear you? you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stephen isn't, uh, isn't on yet? No, he's obviously been delayed. He was here and then he was gone and he'll be back. So. Oh, I certainly hope so. Yes, he will. Okay. Don't, don't worry. Okay. Well, it's interesting. Um, more than it, more than anything else, I'm here to see to hear what Stephen has to say and <laughs> respond to it. Um, so I guess that'll have to wait a bit. Um, I was impressed, frankly. Um, I was very impressed. Everybody simply has to watch the whole hearing. Um, do you have the link? To the video of the two-hour hearing. Yeah, it's actually it should be retitled. It should now be the archive recording at the top of the homepage of the other side of midnight. Just click on that link or click on the image, the graphic, and it takes you right to the archive recording of the entire two and a half hour hearing. Okay, so that's on the homepage, not one of, of your the, items. Of the no, it's not one of my items tonight because it's on the homepage. We can probably move it over, Keith, if you could do that. Yeah, I think be a good idea to move it over maybe make it 1a of yours because it's 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 what everyone needs to see um i was actually impressed um more so than i expected to yeah, be yeah i was very impressed and i didn't believe i was going to be and i thought to myself this is astonishing this is the type of congressional hearing that i used to know way yeah. back in the area of of Dirksen or Mitchell or any of the of the giants of the Congress of old, because everybody was really on point. Everybody had thought very carefully about their questions. Everybody was complimentary of everybody. I mean, Cortez and Comer were on the same panel asking damn good questions. I was fascinated. Yeah, well, and, and people were trying to make political, you know, points off of each other. Nope. It was truly bipartisan because... Um, they've seen the light that this is a genuine national security issue. Well, I think it's I said it. It's a genuine global security issue. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, I, I think I said it last week. Uh, there's so much clown car nonsense going on in Washington right now. But on this subject, the measure of its seriousness and how adult people can be when they're really trying was evidenced in that hearing on Wednesday, I didn't see or hear one grandstanding statement no. that made uh, deprecated the other side. It was astonishingly positive without the content. And of course, the content was mind blowing. The content was mind blowing. And, um, you know, we're used to congressional hearings where the witnesses basically uh, either prevaricate or dissemble. Uh, or don't say anything, or you know, lie. And in this case, um, there were there were hard hitting, simple questions. Do you believe that you know one? I can't remember who who said it, but uh, one of the um, members of of Congress of the House of either party can't remember would ask a simple question close to the end of the hearing: Is this a national 
security threat. And there were three witnesses, and instead of, you know, a speech uh, that kind of talked around the bullseye, they said, yes, yes, yes. It can't be clearer than that. It cannot be clearer than that. Nope. Um, So that's my general comment. I'd like to hear the others, and I'd like to bounce off Steve. I sure hope he comes back. Okay, well, let's bring up Robert. Mr. Morningstar, you're on. I was very pleased with the whole thing, and I'm glad that everybody showed up. I had some concerns as to whether there'd be any sabotaging of witnesses. But um, overall, I'm very happy, very satisfied. I think it was uh, Stephen Bassett's dream come true. (laughs) Uh, I'd like to say the jig is up, the cat is out of the bag, or the cat is out of the box, and or the cat is among the pigeons. No, no. Schrodinger's cat is alive. <laughs> yes, definitely. A la Heisenberg. Schrodinger's cat is alive. We open the box, and the cat is alive, and he ain't going back into the box. Sorry, sorry. That wasn't Heisenberg. It was Fermi who proposed that bizarre experiment where you seal a cat into a box with a radioactive element. Yeah, it was, it was, was, it's called Schrodinger's paradox. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you don't know whether the cat's alive or dead until you open the box. Well, right. The cat's it's very much alive. As Dr. Frankenstein said, it's alive, it's alive. <laughs> Remember? Yes, of course. Yeah, of course. Okay, well, as you see, I'm very excited about it. I'm very happy that it turned out the way it has. I know that uh, Sean Kirkpatrick, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick of the Arrow uh, Committee is not happy because he was exposed as a dissembler, a liar. And the next day, I said I wrote to uh, Senator Gillibrand that he should just resign. He's been exposed as just another shill for the cover-up. So, hasta la vista, Dr. Kirkpatrick. We need somebody there. Who well, can... I would do one more thing. I would have him before the committee, the next hearing, and, and, I, and I would have the panel ask him key questions and then compare his testimony now, whenever the hearing is held, with what he testified before and then ask him to explain the disparity, because yeah. I'll bet he can't. He can't. Well, you know, well, I, I want to take the shortcut. We just got to have to get rid of all the liars, dissemblers, obfuscators, and obstructors. And he is there. You saw it. You said it yourself, you know, when you, when you did the program in June. It was June 19th that they had that meeting. And you said, you know, Sean Kirkpatrick got up there, and, uh, you know, he didn't. He didn't reveal anything. He was covering up everything. Yeah, this this was a four-hour NASA uh, panel foreshadowing the recommendations to the administrator, which right. is the NASA part of the UFO investigation that's going on now at several different levels in the U.S. government. Right. Will wonders never cease? There was, and I did say last week that the Navy has been trying to tell the truth forever. And we had two Navy guys, and when they asked how they were being treated, uh, Commander Fravor said, great, the Navy's, you know, all supportive. But when we talked about Grush, uh, Grush I said, Who was, who's threatening Grush, the U.S. Air Force? And he revealed that that's absolutely the truth. So I said last week, the two big obstructors, the cover-up artists, have been the CIA and the U.S. Air Force, and they are the ones that have the most to lose by this revelation. Now, Grush made a very interesting statement. 
that really caught me off guard. <laughs> Only he, one? Well, no, one <laughs> in particular. You know, he was talking about whether he'd seen bodies, you know, not, not personally or their records, not personally. But he said, my wife and I, the things that my wife and I observed are very disturbing. And for him to bring his wife into a picture with a common experience together speaks volumes to me in terms of alien intrusion. You know, in my archives, I didn't have a chance to send it to you for this show. But in my archives, I have a photograph that was sent to me in 2012 by a U.S. Army sergeant. The U.S. Army sergeant was in bed with his, his uh, lady, and there was an alien intrusion. Mm. And of course... A U.S. Army sergeant is going to stand up. He stood up to fight the alien. The alien. He's going to reach under his pillow for his forty-five and stand oh, he up. Didn't. He didn't sleep. He didn't sleep with a forty-five, but he slept with something else near his near his uh, bed. He got up to confront the alien. The alien, with one flip of the arm, threw him completely over the bed, and mm. he landed. And he was in shock. The alien grabbed his girlfriend, and the sergeant, realizing he had no power to overcome this, this entity. He grabbed his U.S. Army-issued night vision camera and he shot a photograph oh. of the alien carrying his lady. Good off. move. And wow, what presence of mind. Presence of mind. He wrote it to me and he said, listen, I'm sending you this picture. I can't do it officially. You know, I would be court-martialed, but this is what happened. The alien came in. I tried to fight him. He threw me over the bed. I knew I was powerless. I grabbed the camera and shot this picture. I mean, I have a night vision photograph of an alien abducting a woman. And that's what came to mind when uh, Grush mentioned that. Well, wait a minute. Everybody's asking, did they what bring her back? The oh, they took her away and they brought her back. Oh, good. Okay, okay. You know, they, always, they almost always, in rare cases, they don't come back. But they almost always put back the victim. Uh, let's see. Another thing, something that uh, Tim Burchett said really struck me. He said, we have to take back our government. We're fighting against the devil himself. That speaks volumes. So they all know that the greatest threat to our republic and the Constitution is what Dr. Greer has labeled the IST, the illegal secret government. So I'm Well, I think, for- Robert, and then we're, I'm going to move on to Keith because I want his reaction. I think that, you know, in the whole UFO cover-up going back 71 plus years we can see the beginnings of the so-called deep state all around the globe over this issue which then has metastasized into all kinds of other other government processes that should not be secret from citizens anywhere but i think it i think it began with the alien problem how Mm -hmm. do we post-world war ii explain away this absolutely uncomfortable unbelievable new reality well it's exactly as you say and what happened is that the cia used the national security act of 1947 and 48 and uh arrogated to itself immense power well, immense wait, wait, didn't they help write it yeah they helped yeah. write it yeah they of shaped course. it so it would cover anything anything and then they got in cahoots with the Air Force. Then they put the muscle, the economic muscle, on all the other cr- countries to come o- on board. And in the process, as revealed to um, to me and to Barbara Honiger by a former CIA agent, 
uh, named Gordon Ferry, slowly the CIA, a.k.a. the company, became a commercial enterprise. Mm -hmm. And the company took over more and more and more corporations, where today they probably own half the earth. BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, and uh, have most governments in their pocket. And that's why this upper layer of so-called elites are now thinking that they're the kings of the world. Who made Klaus Schwab the Führer of Europe? Who made, who made Bill Gates uh, God to be able to block the sunlight? And while I'm saying this, I want to say this. It's an insane idea. Bill Gates has no right to try to block the sunlight, but he's really screwing the planet because at the same time that he's putting a shell of nanoparticles to fend off the heat of the sun, he's creating a shell around the earth. Hold on, hold on. He's He's creating a shell around the earth to hold the heat that we are generating in. So he's well, really that's not the way to do it, and I'm going to do a whole program or more than one on a much better idea, but I think we passed the point of no return on global warming, and one of the underlying reasons for the urgency, remember part of the conversation after Wednesday was why the urgency, why a Schumer jumping on the bandwagon, et cetera, et cetera? I think it's because without hyperdimensional technology, pun intended, our goose is cooked. We have passed uh, the point of return. Oh, no. I think the whole uh, uh, Earth's overheating is bogus. And, and no, it's political. not. It's just not. Well, you don't. You don't combat it the way the mainstream is talking about it. Let us. Let, let us not argue right now. Let's oh, save that. Opinion. This is my opinion. Okay. Let's okay. go on. Uh, Keith, what was your reaction? Uh, you, you're going to have to give me a minute because I'm trying to get Ron and okay. Stephen on. Stephen just came in. Okay. Right. Then let's go to Stephen. Talk to Steve. Mr. Bassett. Hello. You should be grinning ear to ear. You should be drunk on champagne 24-7. You should be dancing an Irish jig in the streets right in front of the White House over on Pennsylvania. What else could you do that would be outrageous and would wind up on television? What oh, did I you could, I could I could do other side of midnight with Richard Hogan. No, that's I'm, true. That's true. I'm saving the dancing and the champagne for the afternoon, late afternoon, early evening of Friday, sometime in September, when the president steps in front of the podium in the east wing, wing of the White House and says, yes, I am convinced there is an extraterrestrial presence. Then I celebrate. Until then, we're not there yet. Oh, it's like going to Allentown. Are we there yet? Are we there? Okay, so start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. What was your reaction to the hearing? But, but frankly, you were, you were able to pull up a miracle. You got into the hearing itself, right? Danny Shane and I got in. Uh, I got there at uh, about 7.30 in the morning coming through the tunnels <laughs> because I knew how to get there, whereas the other people, some people were standing outside waiting for the building to open. Whatever. The point is, is that uh, as someone who knows the issue very well, particularly the, the political history of the issue, I was picking up on all kinds of things, which uh, I think people who do not know the issue wouldn't have gotten. I mean, they would have gone right by them. And it was all there. Everything you could possibly want was there, <laughs> except it wasn't where it was supposed to be, which is in a, in a, a Senate hearing room with millions of people uh, watching from around the world, probably three to four or five witnesses. Uh, that was where it was supposed to be, but that's not the way it worked out. The way it worked out, the House made a move 
the oversight committee made a move because Tim Bursett was on that committee and he, he was getting a lot of press and media. Uh, and the other members of the committee were watching, including the chairman, Comer. And they said, hmm, we have, an, we have a subcommittee that's appropriate in terms of its subject matter. We'll hold the first hearing. And so they, he is, the Comer assigned the task to Bursette and to uh, Anna Paulina Luna, one of the great names in the history of Congress. And, uh, <laughs> yes. And, 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 and very sharp, too. And, and, and they, they put the hearing together. I was certainly concerned as to what witnesses they would get because nobody has to appear before the hearing, uh, a hearing unless they're subpoenaed. Uh, they weren't going to do that. Uh, and most of the witnesses have been interviewed, but not for that hearing, for the Senate intel. But they got three good witnesses. They got Graves, they got um, uh, Fravor, and they got for, uh, a Grush. The reason they got Grush, who is the, 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 definitely the mega witness at this time, is because he is not just a witness. He's a whistleblower. Uh, he's made it clear that he is. He's made it clear the, that he feels the policy is illegal. He was also being harassed and just doing his job inside. He filed a complaint that went on for some time. And so he got more threats. And that's why he went public with the aid of uh, Blumenthal and Leslie Kane, the article in the debrief and so forth. And so an opportunity to appear before a committee, he was going to take it. He was going to wait for, for uh, Mark Warner to finally pull the trigger on the Senate intel. And so they got him. And so off they go. Okay, hang yeah. on. We're at the bottom of the hour. We're slightly late, so let me do this and this. Here on the other side of midnight, my guests this morning, too numerous to mention, just go to the other side of midnight and you'll see their listing there. Stephen and Barbara and Robert and David and Keith and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Ron will join us very shortly. Um, this is a very interesting night. This, I mean, there's a lot of talk these days about all kinds of amazing and extraordinary things that are happening. We're about to indict a president for uh, insurrection. Uh, there is uh, extraordinary things going on uh, in Israel tonight, which should not be going on. Um, there are uh, real world consequences of global warming. I've had 20 days here of over 100 degrees. It normally is 88. Robert, I don't know where you are, but obviously uh, you're not watching the global picture or you're listening to the wrong people because Global warming is real. The solution is is got to be accelerated drastically because I think there was a study the other day that said that things are happening much sooner than the, quote, scientific community thought they would. And when you're dealing with nonlinear systems and climate and meteorology are totally nonlinear, projections are always in error because the systems are just too damn complex. And then on top of all of this, we have breakthroughs in Washington in a House hearing, which has suddenly made almost a household term, the idea of the deep state, the idea of government suppression, the idea of government, uh, uh, you know, attacking witnesses, trying to keep them censored. In other words, the whole ufology thing as my grandmother would have said if she was still alive, you pull on one thread of the quilt and the whole thing can unravel. And the quilt of the cover-up for the last 70-plus years has begun to dramatically, on global television, unravel. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. There is so much more to come. Don't touch that 
dial. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night on uh, July 30th, 2023. I think this would be called, in any other parlance, a hinge moment of history. I mentioned Roddenberry's rule early on. Well, it's only partially true because not only to be believed by the general population does it have to be on television and even by the insiders. I've seen this pattern now for, for years that even if they get the, the briefing and the, you know, the book with all the classified markings and all that, if they don't see it on television, they don't believe it. Or at least they don't really believe it. And the other part of that is if it's on to- total global television and it's from the House or the Senate of the United States Congress and the witnesses are under oath, They are commanded by law under penalty of jail time, perjury, to tell the truth. It adds to the Roddenberry rule, and that's what happened just a few days ago. And so welcome to AD, and let's bring back Stephen and talk about what you saw live during this historic hearing. Richard, I have a burning question for Stephen. Oh, by all means. Yes, Stephen, um, I heard it claimed, and I'd like to know if you know if it's true, um, that the somebody on the uh, House committee, subcommittee, 
um, didn't want the witnesses under oath, but the witnesses demanded to be under oath and got that. Is that true? I have heard. I have not heard that. I mm. consider that highly unlikely. When uh-huh. you have a hearing like that, everybody, people are going to be under oath, and the idea that somebody on the committee would not have wanted that would have been odd, and there would have been zero chance that anybody would have gone along with it. So that's all yeah. I can say. Well, thank you. Um, that was one of the, you know, CBS or ABC News. Okay, thank you. Okay. I, I'm, it's possible somebody raised the point, uh, but uh, no way. That was going to happen. Okay, Steve, before we get into details, I just wanted like an overview from each person. I've got a couple more to go through. Then we'll come back to you because you were there. Is that okay? I guess. I mean, what constitutes an overview? Two minutes. You've already set the scene. This is historic. You appreciate it. Let me let me uh, let me I'll, let me just start and you can then we can come back to me. Okay. Look, first of all, I'm going to give the audience an important tip. If if somebody under oath is asked a question like, are you aware there's, uh, there are extraterrestrials engaging the planet? And the answer is, I cannot talk about that in open session, but I will in private session. That is a yes. OK, just keep that in mind. That's what that is. And based upon, on these very scripted questions, there are a lot of scripted questions designed specifically to, for this to happen. Well, even right. at one point, Luna, when Grush was trying to do his incredible bureaucratic shorthand, which was most annoying, I wish he would know how to speak English, she actually said, you need to say what you were going to say on the record well, under no, oath. The, the reason that she said that is that he had stated that I can say that he, he was referring to something that he said he could say in private session only, but he was referring to something that he had said on News Nation. And since he'd said it on News Nation, well, actually, no, what he said is, uh, as I have already stated, right? And he was referring to something he'd said on yeah, News Nation. Yeah, and she very rightly stated. said, and no, you need to put it on the record here. That's right. So she asked them to restate it. I'm referring to things that they cannot talk about publicly. There were questions that were asked, very scripted questions, that they knew the answer was going to be, I cannot talk about that in public session, knowing that the way those questions were asked, people would know exactly what the answer was, which was yes. And so based upon that, once you got that down, you understand that, here's what we learned at this hearing. One, there's a non-human presence engaging the human race. Two, we have multiple crash vehicles. Three, and some have, of them are intact and flyable. I, I don't know that. He didn't say that. Oh yes, in other venues, he said they're intact. Some of them are okay. intact. All right, he said that. Fine. Uh, we have bodies. Yes. Okay. There has been a multi-multi-decade uh, project to embargo this issue from the American people. We learned that, all right? We and hang on, hang on. And we learned that the inside deep state uh-huh. has been operating above the level of Cong- congressional oversight, which made everybody on that panel very mad. Yes, indeed, Richard. And uh, uh, <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Look, a little joint project here. We're giving a joint overview. Um, and let's see. Well, it's hard for me to keep a train of thought, Dick. Uh, uh, what else did we learn? But, I mean, that's a lot. I mean, we have learned one hell of a lot. We have learned that many, many uh, insiders have been harassed 
uh, over the, over the years and even re- recent years. We learned that there were injuries and some deaths probably in the early days uh, when we were confronting this phenomena. Okay. Um, boy. Uh, well, let me break that-, that down into two parts because Grush was very clear that some of the injuries and deaths were due to government action. Others yeah. were due to people, scientists, engineers, who basically messed with technology, which if you don't know what you're doing, it will kill you. He didn't say it that bluntly, but he basically what he was saying is that there are injury deaths connected to the phenomena. He didn't get the specifics. In order, He said he'd have to go into private session or uh, secure session to do that. Now, all of these things we know. All of these things were known to the researchers in this field, but they hadn't been stated publicly under oath. And um, to make another point, some time ago, I, I was making a very, very important point to my podcast audiences as I was talking, giving interviews. When, as we approach disclosure, and certainly after we get disclosure, there's only two kind of answers the public are going to uh, get and had and, and better get and expect. Two answers and two only. One, under oath, the absolute truth to the question. Or two, I cannot speak about that in open session, but I can speak to you in private session. Those are the only two answers that will be permissible. Any attempt to, quote, lie because you just don't want to talk about it or you know, misdirect or anything else, the people via the Internet and the journalists are going to crush you. And I think they're already getting that because that whole hearing was that way. If he couldn't say it in public, they asked him a question that made him uh, – not made him, but allow him to say, I can only go in private session. And that includes he made it clear that he knows the names of the people involved in the USAPs. He knows the names of the program. He knows where the, much of this material is housed. He knows the corporations that have it. Or, and he has provided that already to several intel committees. So when you look at it that way, what I'm trying to say is that was a massively important event that the vast majority of audience probably don't understand how important I do, and it sets the stage for the Senate. And when they get going, and what you're going to hear in that testimony is going to take the truth embargo down. It's going to end it once and for all. Stephen? So, Yes. Go ahead, Barbara. Yeah. Um, during the hearing, it was stated, and the members of Congress were very upset about it, um, that they were denied access to the skiff. Um, has that been remedied? You know. My understanding is that um, they actually took a number of these witnesses into a skiff after the event. Now, uh-huh. that might have been a misinterpretation of they took them into a private session. All right. In other words, you don't have to be in a skiff to receive classified testimony, but in certain instances you do. Uh, what what happened is that again the the, the move the move by the, uh, uh, the oversight committee caught a lot of people by surprise. This is a force majeure. Movement. Wait, 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 wait. What are those people? You mean on the hill? Government? Words, yeah, the people media? on the hill. Uh, journalists, others did not did not expect the uh, the House Oversight Committee to make a move on this, uh, and and that's because they underestimated how much influence Bursett was having with uh, with Comer, the chair. And so when they, so they called this committee. Okay, now let me let me. I'm going to try not to be. I'm going to be fair here. This was a nonpartisan event. They went to great lengths to make it a nonpartisan event, and I applaud them on that. However, I can assure you. That the fact that a Republican-held committee in the House made a move to be the first 
hearing on this subject since 1968 was very uh, political. They wanted a piece of the action. They didn't want to have the Senate uh, Democrat-run Senate Intel Committee to get all of the action, and so they made a, a quick and bold move. But they got a little ahead of their skis, and so as, an, as and so there was a certain amount of grandstanding going on there. Well, when those three members went down to Eglin, they were grandstanding. They thought they could just walk in, go up to some colonel or something, and say, "Look, we want to see this. We want to see that." Uh, uh-uh, that's not the way it works. Okay, and they were overstating the, the amount of power and clearance they had. Well, have. wait, 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 wait. Let me let me stop you there. I think it was a deliberate move to provoke the Air Force to do what it did to create public interest and controversy prior to the hearing. Uh, e- well, either way, it's grandstanding. If it was, yeah, but I it think was it was provoked. deliberate grandstanding. Well, no. Well, grandstanding is by definition deliberate, uh, Richard. Uh, uh, either way, they were ahead of their skis. Now, if it, if it was to get a certain effect, fine. If it was actually to try to get information in a grandstanding way, it wasn't going to work. And so they probably irritated the Air Forces. So there was a little, little back and forth going on there leading into it, uh, pride of place and all that stuff. Small potatoes, not important, not a big deal at all. Just a hearing thrown together, quick notice, moving quickly, uh, trying to move around. I assure you, the Senate, the state Senate Intel Committee – the illustrious Senate Intel Committee is going about things in a more deliberate, high, high production way, and these kinds of problems will not happen. Stephen? Yes, sir. Uh, I have a small question. This is Ron Gerbron speaking. Hi, Ron. Hi. Uh, well, I agree. I agree with large chunks of what you're just saying there, so I didn't, I'm not stepping in to attack you, but could you give a short definition of what would qualify something? To be uh, presented in a skiff as opposed to a yeah. secure, confidential, et cetera, uh, that um, as opposed to in open session, because I, I have the impression it mostly means that there wouldn't be any follow-up questions, because you don't have to give more truth than you want to if you're in a situation like that. You know, you just say, "Sorry, that's outside the bounds." No. And, uh, um, okay. Well, look. Look, every every question, every answer to any question in the national security arena has got some degree of classification attached to it. Of course it does. And these and these degrees of classification are complex uh, and somewhat interpretive. For instance, ways you know uh, ways and uh, what do they call it? Um, uh, ways and means. Not ways and means, but um, sources and 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 sources and, and methods. Sources and methods, right. What is a source and what is a method and what have you. But everyone has a certain level of classification. And uh, I think some material would, would, would be, could be, would, might, might be at a level that just ha- being in a room, say in a Senate office, uh, talking to somebody who has the proper clearance, which would be certainly a, a member of the Intel Committee, you could, you could talk. Some things, however, are so sensitive that you have to go into a skiff. And what a skiff is, is a room that is technically, theoretically, impenetrable in any way. It's just a Faraday cage. It just keeps radio waves out and everything in. It's more than a Faraday cage. You can't can't get to be more than a Faraday cage. Yes, David? That's where Andy Ogles, representative of Tennessee, said during a skiff, he would invoke the Holman rule 
which would strip those Air Force generals of their salaries and their funding, forcing the, the rabbit out of the hole or the fox out of the den so that they could get inside because they were denied access. This committee was denied access from the Air Force general to go in and the pilots were threatened to be stripped of their titles. So then again, he said they would, Andy Ogles, Representative Tanney, said they would um, invoke the Holman rule in that skiff situation. What, so that's, uh, uh, that's exciting. Are we talking about a specific situation here or is a general idea that's what they would do? No, that was during the hearing. During the hearing, Andy Ogles said yeah. that he, he vowed to, and this is in the press, I mean, and I watched the hearing front to back. It's in the transcript. That was Who's Andy very who is Andy He's Ogle? representative of Tennessee. He, I think he had the bandana on. I think he was. No, 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 no. That was Jeremy. No, no, that, that was, was Jeremy Raskin. Was Jamie Haskin. Okay, there is so, no. There is no member. Yeah, of the representative Ogle. Andy Ogle is a rep, is a Republican from Tennessee, along with Burchette. Oh. Vowed to do. This is in the right. press. I heard him say this. I don't know. I don't remember what he looked like. It's. This is literally. It says there are. Here is who threatened to use the Holman rule during the hearing, and that was Andy Ogles, representative of Tennessee, vowed to do just that, saying that he would personally volunteer to initiate the Holman rule against any personnel or any program or any agency that desires access to Congress. Uh, okay. Oh, oh, oh. Now it's coming back to me. Ogles, yes. Okay. What Could he you would, please say what, what the Holman rule is? Well, the whole, I just said it. The Holman Rule. Hang on, is, hang on. David, David, you wrote it to me. Let, me. let me read it. The Holman Rule is a house power through which they can strip the salary of a specific government position from civil servants, fire them, or cut a particular program. Well, okay. it's which was used. Has abrogated to itself? No, it's part of the legislative process. I mean, is it in the law? Yes, of oh, course yes, it's it in the law. Used. Remember, all funding starts in the House. So, you know, they've been saying for years, if the House doesn't like something, like the Supreme Court won't do ethics, you know, take away their funding. Well, that's my question. Is it part of a federal statute, this Holman Rule? Because, because they're talking about one branch of government, the congressional branch, firing somebody in the executive branch. I don't think the Supreme Court would like this. It has nothing to do with that, Barbara. It's uh, it's a tit for tat thing. It's saying that if you violate the principle behind, the, in this case, a skiff, you know, secured transfer of information to someone who has the air quotes need to know, uh, that if you violate that and try and use that process as a subterfuge in order to not convey any information that was expected under the situation in this case, the hearings, uh, then yes, you could be considered a uh, renegade, if you will. That's not, <laughs> not one of their words. And uh, be stripped of your um, whatever they could strip. Well, uh, no wonder they uh, no, no wonder they didn't uh, allow them into the skiff then. No, 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 no. folks, please. We're getting off far field. Left. Why? Field. Why? Why? Why, Stephen? Right. Why is this right. off topic? Context right. is everything. I, 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 That's all I'm going to say. Let me let me clarify. Yeah. Now that I have been reminded, what 
Ogles. How did I miss Ogles? I went to see – I visited the office of every single one of the, the, the committee, and I don't recall seeing Ogles. Okay, look. What he was doing is saying that if necessary, you know, we, if, we're, if, they're, if things are going to get tough, if necessary, we get people in a skiff. They're not going to cooperate. I can invoke the Holman Rule. Now, the Holman Rule is tricky, right? It's been invoked only in various time periods. Uh, it's a rule of the House, all right? And I think that it was revived, I think, recently uh, and therefore can be applied. So it's tricky. But let's assume that they can do it, and, and I'll, I'll assume that. He was saying, I'm willing to go that far. He was not saying that the Holman rule was going to be used with the people that were going to be in the skiff or had, were going to come into the skiff prior to the event. There is, that kind of contention is not happening. But he was saying if it comes to that, yeah, I'll, I'll invoke it. Okay, fine. That's fine. All right. Uh, I, I don't think they're going to have to. We're in a very high state of cooperation here. Everybody is trying to be cooperative and get on board. Thank goodness. And uh, that's what I, just the only clarification I wanted to give. I want to say the Holman rule is effective. It puts the fear of the Lord in the obstructionist, and it was most recently used to force uh, Christopher Ray to give up the secret file. And ah, interesting. Right. Mm. So he coughed it up after they told him they were in kind of Google. Google yeah. is your yeah. friend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, so hang on, hang on, Stephen. Please. Let's hope it won't come to that. Let's just hope it won't come to that. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, are you finished with your opening remarks? Because I think so. Okay. Okay. Can I want to obviously come back to you. We've got three other people. Keith, I wanted to go to you next. What your reaction was? You've spent, you know, decades working for a major network in that town. Had you ever seen anything like this on Capitol Hill? No. This that last one that they did was. Uh, uh, they gave me the impression it was a scam, and they were trying to put this weather balloon stuff back into place. This one, the testimony of the the people who actually were involved, like uh, the pilots and the uh, radar operator, they were telling their story, but nobody was listening because there's a lot of skeptics out here talking about, oh, their stories aren't consistent, and they're they're dismissing what these guys are actually saying. And eyewitness accounts are the primary thing that UFO sightings is all are really all based around. But the radar operator, they dismissed him because he didn't see anything. He was seeing what was on his radar. But that is – if our radar is that bad and <laughs> he's looking at something dro dropping from 80,000 feet down to 15 feet above the ocean. Yeah, this is, this the, is the radar operator on the Princeton, which was the companion ship to the Nimitz that was part of the uh, uh, you know, um, deployment exercise that they were involved in when they saw these bizarre Tic Tacs descending you know, in, in less than a second from 80,000 feet. Um, what I found interesting – Coming off what you just said, Keith, is we had sitting there right in the middle of the, of the three witnesses, an absolute bona fide bureaucrat. I mean, uh, uh, Grush is the consummate bureaucrat. He spoke in bureaucratic ease. He spoke with an arrogance that, frankly, was kind of off-putting. He spoke in lingo. He he obviously came off as one of the in crowd who had his nose bent out of shape because he discovered he didn't have the power he thought he had. And when he tried to go beyond it, he got slapped down and he slapped back. 
but it's like the hero of the hour was a Washington bureaucrat who basically showed you don't have to be a witness. You have to be in a position of power to interview other witnesses. Otherwise, no case under any DA would ever come to trial because, of course, the DA was not a witness to every murder, every bank robbery, every whatever. So we've established in this hearing that people who interview principals are as bona fide to tell the truth as people like Farver and uh, the other pilot. Fravor right. and Grace, uh, could, I inter- could I just interject here? I'd like to politely disagree, if I may, with your assessment of Crush. I do not see him that way at all. Okay. Uh, he did not exceed his power when he was working at the UAP. In fact, he operated within uh, the context of the job that he had when he received the information from uh, people reporting to the UAP task force uh, appropriately. He passed that on. Oh, I'm getting. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing an echo for some reason. Let me move the mic away from my mouth just a second. Uh, he passed that on to some appropriate people, and then he started getting grief, meaning, you know, we, we didn't want you to do that, your job. And when the grief got intense enough, he then went to the inspector general, ultimately in both the DOD and the intelligence community, and was represented by the former intelligence community IG, Charles McCullough, and in fact got a, a return uh, and a verdict that, in fact, yes, this was an urgent matter need to be dealt with. And it was dealt with. But there's only so much you can do. It's like those restraining orders. People get in the courts. They never work. You end up on dateline. And I was one of those murder victims. The point is, is that he continued to get uh, threats, including his family. And that ultimately led to him resigning from the UAP test, the UAP task force, and ultimately going public with his concerns as a legitimate whistleblower. By coming public that way, he has taken enormous risk. He has been through hell. He is an absolute national hero. Furthermore, the reason he sounds like an expert is because he is an expert, and his job is to go up there and speak in the most precise and appropriate terms about what is going on. And he did that. For those who are not as familiar with the subject matter and with the ways of government, they may find it hard to understand, but that's not his problem. His problem must be as precise as possible, and that's what he did. He was assertive, but not arrogant. I have seen enough of the man to know that he is um, trying to do the right thing. He is under a lot of pressure, and he's being assertive to make it known to people, I'm serious about this. And he's not grandstanding, I assure you. So I just want to put that out there, just a counter view of David Grush, who I have come to admire. Okay, we are at the top of the hour. My guests this morning, too numerous to mention, are uh, listed on the other side of Midnight website. You're on the other side, and it is Sunday night, the uh, 30th of July, here on the other side. We have a very remarkable conversation going. We'll get back to it momentarily. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. On this Sunday night to the other side of midnight, I have many interesting guests from Steve Bassett and Morningstar and Barbara and Ron and David and too numerous to mention, just go to the website to see who they are and you'll know most of them by their voices. So we're going to get back now to the conversation. Barbara, I think before we went to break, you had a question. Well, I wanted to point out that today is National Whistleblowers Day. Oh, really? really? And, yeah, and <laughs> according to Brass Check TV, anyway. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to uh, to very strongly second what Steve Bassett said about, is it Grush? Yeah, David um, Grush. Grush, I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I did have um, some skepticism going into it, but I don't anymore. Um, this is a genuine whistleblower. And uh, in my opinion, it, uh, it is very unfair to say that uh, uh, his uh, testimony doesn't really matter uh, because he is uh, a hearsay witness. No, he's not. Uh, not anymore. There, there was a, in the mainstream media, there was a parallel, something to the effect, um, if you were uh, the DA or a U.S. attorney, uh, and you were uh, investigating a murder, uh, and you testified in court to all the evidence that you'd pulled together, um, would uh, would you be thrown out of court? Of course not. Well, wait, wait. That's what I said before the break, and I think Stephen misunderstood what I was saying. I'm not saying that Grush's testimony isn't riveting and, and real. I'm saying that his demeanor was not as approachable as the other two pilots and some people were put off by an arrogance that comes from being inside and suddenly discovering you don't have the power you think you have. Because if he had it, there would have been no pushback and he would not have appeared and he wouldn't have resigned and all that. In other words, I, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. Arrogance. I just I agree with you, Richard. carefulness. Uh, no, no, no. He, he wasn't about power. It wasn't because no. he thought he had power to do this or do that. He did his job. He was attacked and, and, and harassed for doing his job, and he responded to that by ultimately going public. And again, w- what you're seeing is not arrogance, but rather a positive assertiveness 
which is necessary when you are under the kind of uh, uh, pressure that he's under. He can't be timid. He can't go out there and fumble and mumble. He has to be very precise and very professional because he is he is tasked or he is trying to make sure that people understand that he is telling the truth. He knows what he's talking about so that he can get additional support. The other two witnesses are not whistleblowers. They had an easy day. That was no big – they're having – in fact, I think you may recall at some point Fravor said, I haven't had any problems at all. It's been great, and it's true. He hasn't had any problems. He's not a whistleblower, and neither is uh, – I'm sorry, Fravor. Neither is Graves. Uh, but, uh, but I'm not saying they haven't had some issues, but overall, no. Has, no. Grush, really, boy, he he – he, I, he just, I mean, he, he, he dropped crash vehicles and, and ET bodies into mainstream media out of nowhere on July the 5th. Yeah, Stephen, I think this is a digression, and it's obviously my fault, so let's move on, okay? Yeah, okay. David, do you have any reactions to what uh, was said on – Oh, Yeah. Major reactions, okay. skin reactions, hair reactions, hair bending reactions. So <laughs> I first I want to clarify because I'm referring to a Fox 59 article. I'm actually surprised about the Holloman um, act, cool. but here's what it finally says. Okay, Muskowitz told the Hill that while it's too early to use the Holloman rule – which is what Stephen Bassett is saying, as Congress must first figure out where these positions exist and then examine whether or not they should be funded, he hopes that by discussing the rule, it will create more transparency with the federal government. This is about government transparency. I'm all for protecting national security, but that can't just be a shield to deny the American people the basics of what we know about UAPs, he said. This is Muskowitz. Of course, we all saw him in the hearing. And Birch had said if lawmakers start getting stonewalled by the Pentagon and intelligence agencies, he will then have no hesitation to invoke the rule. Okay, so there you go. That's that's pretty much what, what where Bassett was going. Now, I want I, I want to fulfill what Keith was starting because what really bothered me during the hearings because I'm so meticulous on the UAP performance data being consistent and Keith was going in the same direction that that I'm going to go into and that is in different media and it seems like the media and or the pilots have different um, interpretations of the data. And I'll give you an example. Um, David Fravor, Commander David Fravor, bless him for putting up with all this stress, said on Netflix that they saw UAP jump 60 miles in one second, now, which is 216,000 miles an hour, by the way. Now, the, the same statement David Fravor made during the hearing was they saw it on radar go 60 miles in less than a minute. And then he said, do the math during the hearing. And I'm like, wait a minute, you can't, you can't do the math on a statement called less than a minute. But what you said on Netflix is, is in one, he didn't use the word one second. He said, he snapped his fingers and he said, just like that. Now Keith was saying that they, now, and this is why the radar operator should have been present. Kevin Day because the radar operator has the data, and the way radar works is it will give you a reading in a tiny fraction of a second, because radar travels at the speed of light, 
and the speed of light will go around the planet, you know, seven and a half times a second approximately. So therefore, if an air, if an air vehicle, a UAP is coming from above 80,000 feet, that's not precise. And it, it went, and this is what Fravor said during the hearing, to 20,000 feet in, he said, seconds. But actually, prior, Fravor had said that the UAP came from above 80,000 feet, and this was confirmed by the radar operator, in 0.78 seconds to the deck. Now, I had Lou Elizondo in a private meeting with Dan Aykroyd, and Richard Dolan was there, and Bobby Kennedy Jr. Jr. was the one hosting the meeting, and Lou Elizondo said no, it was it was from above 80,000 feet to the deck in 0.78 seconds. Now that's that's over 66,000 miles an hour. So what it, what it, where the mainstream press is really screwing this up is like the article, the opinion piece on CNN was so pathetic. The author went on to say that none of these pilots know what they're doing. They're just chasing Venus, and this is the simple matter of the story, and it's not a big story. That, that was his reaction to the freaking hearing, and that's what you spoon-feed the public. And you know why? Because we're not getting this performance data perfect, because if, when you show speeds of 66,000 miles an hour, and Michio Kaku tells you 25,000 miles an hour, which is the speed of the Apollo missions to the moon, and the Minuteman missile goes 18,000 miles an hour, and our fighter jets, you know, struggle to hit 2,500 miles an hour. 3,000 would be a miracle. So when you have comparative performance analysis data presented to the public, and you see UAPs doing 66,000 miles an hour and maybe 216,000 miles an hour, I'm like, you're, the press can't respond with ideas that they're balloons that they're garbage. You should hear this. The, the CNN opinion piece just made me want to barf, which is why the hair stood up on my on the end of my neck. And I'm like, you guys, during this hearing, should have had Kevin Day there, the radar operator, and he should have given us the exact, exact, for the record, performance data so we know how fast they're going, so then we can rule out Russia, rule out China, and we know we're dealing with ET. And that, so that kind of upset me. But at the same time, when Kevin... Day said that these things outperformed everything we have and there's nothing on earth like it. That's simple for the public, right? They, they, they can get that. Okay, so it's beyond everything. So then how the heck does CNN come up with you're chasing Venus and you can't see Venus in the middle of the day. You can see it when it's David, 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 because yeah. it's delivered disinformation to make it all go away. Look, as, exactly. as, as everyone is, has established, there is a pro side for disclosure now, and there's an anti side. And the anti side is going to use every tool in their toolkit to keep people from taking this seriously. And the pro side needs to be as aggressive and on point, as you said, to put out the positive, real information that will stand the test of time. And the hearing process, I believe, Stephen, correct me if I'm wrong, but the hearing process is the way the public is going to learn about this, not through opinions on CNN. Well, let, let me, let me uh, comment on this. Uh, first of all, uh, as you know, one of my tasks is tracking the media. I've already logged in. I don't know how many articles. I've got another hundred or so that I've got to log on to my print media archive. It is getting a fire hose of coverage. And almost all of this coverage is positive and impressive. 
Now, that's point number one. Point number two, just put opinion pieces, just throw them out the window. Any entity, any CNN or anything else can have an opinion piece. The, uh, the, the Post just had an opinion piece from one of their sort of contributors. It's one of the worst I've seen in a long time. It's unfortunate. People have opinions. Throw it out. You're interested in the fundamental report coverage coming from the entity. And there are scores and scores of articles that are covering this quite well. So I'm comfortable uh, with that. It's not, there is not a quote disinformation campaign on the media. The media is basically on our side. In fact, they're rocking. Now they can go for, they didn't do more and we need the big guns to do more, but I know that they're researching and betting and doing what they do. But eventually, you'll be seeing more from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and elsewhere. Uh, I like just to want to mention something that. about Venus. Yes. I like to, yes, I'd like to say something about. And this Venus. is Robert Morningstar, who is the Venus. The <laughs> <laughs> leading authority on I Venus. Pla- I come from the planet of love, and I want to go back, but not there. You go. Hey, you're going to anyway. force me to play Rick, uh, Avalon during the break. Now listen to this. Listen to this. If CNN said that they're chasing Venus. They are digging out the bottom of the barrel, of a rotten, stinking barrel, because that's what they said about the death of Captain Thomas Mantell, January 7, 1948. In Kentucky. In Kentucky over Fort Knox. I sent Keith uh, four links. One of them is to my article about the significance of the day, July 26. And it's a really, it's a compendium of the history of UFOs. I've included in there a fabulous movie called UFO, the, the real, the true story of flying saucers made in 1956 with the complete cooperation of the United States Air Force. And when I say complete cooperation, I mean that the real people who live the real things are acting in the movie. Captain Edward Ruppelt, Major Dewey Fournay, the airline, uh, uh, the airline pilot who was... Uh, tracked by, uh, paced by UFOs, the radar operators who were in the Washington Tower. Uh, Major Donald Kehoe makes a cameo appearance when they tell you the story of Captain Mantell's chase. And it's the greatest disservice to any pilot who gave his life being vectored by air traffic control to chase a UFO, and then he died. And the Army came out saying that he was chasing Venus. So that, that bogus story is... 74 years old and it doesn't wash so and they tried to use it in this case and and i read a lot of the press i agree with Stephen. i think they're a little shy they're not like ryan graves is very precise i've watched everything ryan lieutenant ryan graves has done when he's telling you that a cube with a translucent sphere surrounding a gray to black cube is zero Mach, meaning it's floating. And, you know, I understand altitude very well because I've skydived from 30,000 feet. I know what happens up there. And I can tell you that, that the press, if they were more intelligent, Ryan Graves knows so much about those cubes that they regularly see off the Atlantic, off the Carolinas. There's a window he's demonstrated where they see these things all the time. He's saying during the hearing they're going zero mock in hurricane force winds is impossible for a balloon. So again, when the opinion piece on CNN throws up balloons, you're not listening to Ryan Graves. You can't go zero mock in hurricane force winds. And if you're up at 
he he spoke of um, altitudes like 40,000 feet. I mean, when you get up that high, the temperatures are below minus 70, minus 80. So therefore, your signal on your flare cam, the cold, against any heat, you should see, and this was the question I would ask Graves, is would you see a thermal image of an ET or a person inside through the membrane of the craft at that temperature differential, you know, minus 80 to, you know, um, whatever the heat. You know how you can use flare to see a per- people walking around in a house through the walls? Like, I want to know if they, because they got apparently no temperature on these things. And if you listen to um, David Mason, who him and I talk all the time, David Mason used the million dollar flare cams in the movie Tear in the Sky. And what his data is really mind-blowing because they can see tiny temperature differentials. So if the pilots, this would tell us if they're, if they're drone or high-tech drone that are supersonic beyond 60,000 mile an hour, supersonic drones would be something off-world in my opinion. <laughs> but yeah. 216,000 mile an hour drones, and that's what, that's what David Fravor said on Netflix. He said 60 miles and just like that. Well, that's 216,000 miles an hour. So if there are occupants inside that have thermal bodies that emit heat like we do at 98.6 degrees or something like that, you know, fish, you know, Richard, you and I were talking about this. The temperature of fish can go down to 40 degrees Celsius and even colder. Um, but still, believe it or not, David Mason's flare cams can see temperatures that low as thermal in, in different bands of the IR, infrared. So my question to the pilots would be, two, one, can you see any temperature on occupants through the wall, through the membrane of the vehicle? And two, are they seeing any gamma signatures? Because David Mason is seeing gamma signatures, and gamma signatures signify anti-matter so again well not necessarily they 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 they, they indicate gamma ray uh emission from some source uh let's not get lost david let's not get lost in the weeds okay your overall impression yes my overall impression was it was a big step forward i love the look on alexandria ocasio cortez's face i was just looking at her face going what does it feel like for her to be in this hearing? And I, I Googled res- her responses in the press, which you won't see in the mainstream news, but one of her statements is she's never been in a hearing on anything like this ever before. So how is she going to react? Mm. I thought it was pretty hilarious. Yeah. Slack, slack jawed. Uh, uh, Stephen, since you brought up the cubes, or you mentioned the cubes, I've been I've been chewing this over. There is a there is actually a very solid explanation for all of these incredible speed jumps and related things, which would take much too long to explain. But I think this gets the idea across. And it's not that I could do it. I'm not the physicist. The uh, but somebody could. It is a uh, uh, it's an illusion. It's not wrong. It's not that it isn't happening, but what we perceive as a jump from here to somewhere far away that would require in linear uh, travel, you know, the 66,000 miles an hour, even if, it, even if you can track it, you know, even if you can watch it apparently do that, 
the uh, the easiest way to to explain it is to analogize it to a uh, if you're standing inside a warehouse, a dark warehouse with a with a flashlight with a tight beam, and you point the flashlight at something, and then you say, "Oh, what's that over there?" and you reach over to point it at the far side of the warehouse, you have that that spot of light has just traveled at an incredible speed, but it's all a matter of delta. It's just that you're you're in one spot. You just went flick, and it was over there. This is a mismatch between dimensional standing. Well, wait a minute, Ron. That that came up during the hearing, and Grush answered it's dimensional, and he used yes. the projection from 3D to 2D, which in fact was the reverse. He should have used 2D to 3D, but he basically said this is a dimensional physics, which, of course, I'm jumping up and down because we've known for years now about See, these, I knew you'd like that part. About these 2004 appearances of cubes in spheres. Well, as I said on one of the uh, email lists that Robert sends around, that's nothing but a double tetrahedron in a sphere. A cube is a double tetrahedron. They've been trying, whoever they are, to teach us through example in a very prime directive kind of way about hyperdimensional physics, which is the basis of all this magic for literally two decades, if not longer. Ron, I want to point out to you that the further you get away from an object, for example, a muamua reached a top speed of 196,000 miles an hour, which is just shy of the 216,000 miles an hour that David Fravor's UIP jumping 60 miles. Yeah, but that was second. very different. That was tracked. That was an outer space. That was tracked. I know. I know. Orbit. I'm just saying the further away you get from something, you can track it. You're right. If you're close to it, you can't track it unless you've got really good radar. Well, wait, 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 wait. Let's not confuse radar a mua. Let's not it. confuse a mua mua, which was an object tracked minute so by just, minute. Hang on. Hang on. Yeah. Minute by minute in an orbit of the sun, a parabolic orbit with these jumps of UFOs, UAPs. Let me go back to our Oumuamua experiment. Remember, through you and James, uh, what's his name? Um, Jimmy Blanchard. Jimmy, Jimmy, yeah. His his radio receiver has low-light-level TV cameras, and the night we did the broadcast to Oumuamua, within seconds, various structured craft on the video showed up over the antenna and they didn't move across the sky one second they're not there and the next they are it's the beam me up scotty model they came from some other dimension and appeared in three space and the objects the tic tacs that were seen on radar from the princeton obviously did something very similar if not identical and of course we do not have at least in the public view Anything on Earth which can match this hyperdimensional area technology. Exactly the point. And if it was if it was crystal clear in the presentation, because Kevin Day should have been in the hearing, Ryan Graves did a spectacular job. His data is always the same. I've listened to him over and over. He never flutters. Um, we would beat the the idea, and you know I would never hand China 
a ticket to air superiority just because we're speculating that they, they may have this technology. I wouldn't do that. But one thing I really respect about the closed hearing concept that David Grush brought up is we have to protect national security. If we have this technology and we could, we could, the war in Russia would be over. Right. And isn't that what the hearing started with? Like if, if China or Russia had this technology, the war would be over. We'd be already. speaking Russian and Chinese tonight. Yeah, you'd be speaking Russian. So they don't have it clearly. No. So the no. question is, do does the United States have it? And if they do and they, they go into these closed hearings and they find out they do and they're getting funded, the Holman Act should not be enacted because you don't want to give away your wild card. Look what happened with the nuclear bomb. My God, the Russians stole the H-bomb and they stole the atomic bomb because they had spies in Los Alamos. If this is our, a, a closely guarded secret, this technology that cannot ever get out unless we yeah, need but it. Yeah, but all the, all the big guys know this. Come on. There are no secrets anymore. None. I mean, look at what like Trump say something about the technology. Hang on a sec. Hang on. Let me, let me finish my yeah. setup here. Trump has proven to us that the idea of classified means nothing. Nothing. So let me give a plug here for You're some. Up Trump? Oh. Yes, of course, because he took all these super top secret documents to Mar-a-Lago and showed them around to anybody. So security means nothing. If it wasn't him, there's a bunch, there's a bunch of – hang on, guys. I disagree with that. He's being, he's being um, indicted for multiple crimes over it. Yes. All presidents take classified documents. The point is they don't show them to just any random person, which we have him on tape doing. My point, is, my point is this. At the top level, everything we think is secret, it's not. It's a game they're playing. It's a, it's a power game. game. I... The reality is there are very, very few, and certainly this technology. I want to give a plug to Paul the Violet, who died several months ago. He's a PhD, friend of mine for really? decades, author, and he wrote a brilliant book called Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion, Tesla, UFOs, and Classified Aerospace Technology. And the book is filled with documents, with memos, with official formally classified and declassified material relating to this kind of technology. So if you want to learn how these things function, just pick up Paul's book. Secrets of Anti-Gravity Repulsion on, on Amazon. So, Barbara, Oh, my God, he died. Oh, my God. We died of cancer. He had cancer for several years, and, and it was a losing battle like Robin. So, Barbara, you wanted to say something. Uh, no, no, I did. Maybe I was, maybe I was uh, cut off, but um, I, disagree. I already said it. I don't know if you heard it, that I disagree that classification means nothing. Trump is being indicted on multiple very serious national security crimes for what he did with those documents. And yeah, but Clinton, Clinton sold China, gave China ICBMs as in classified technology. He's the one who, who make, gave them the opportunity to make this quantum leap with their the ability to deliver yeah. nuclear weapons. My, my point is, on was, the, on the record in Paul's book, is documentation that this technology has been worked on in secret programs in the Army, in the Air Force, in the Navy for decades, going back to, you know, uh, T. Townsend Brown. 
When, that's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Robert. Go ahead. Well, as I told uh, Stephen earlier today, I worked for 10 years closely with an Air Force captain named Captain Robert M. Collins. He worked for the Foreign Technology Division at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This is where they take the wreckage and begin the reverse engineering. And he told me that after all those years of investigation, the U.S. Air Force came to the conclusion that UFOs, flying saucers, are not aerodynamic vehicles. They're time machines. So that they, we think that they move through space, but they don't. They blink in, they blink out according to these different time frames. So the blinking in and blinking out and traveling 60 miles in one second indicates to me that they have the ability to quantum jump. And just as above, so below, just as a, an electron can do a quantum jump from one shell of an atom to another without crossing the space between them, this technology, these entities have that ability to do it with large material objects that materialize, dematerialize, and then rematerialize. Which is and the it, quintessence of hyperdimensional physics. Exactly. But uh, finally, I read about this in U.S. Army records from World War II. It was first reported by a German submarine sailor who was on a mission from Japan to Germany. They were transporting liquid mercury, which was part of the power source for these uh, Aonibu UFO flying saucers. Hey, Robert, Robert, we're at the bottom of the hour. Hold that. Okay. We'll come back. Okay. My guest this morning, very volatile very um, argumentative with me at times. I mean, this really does somehow border on incredulity that we actually have any disagreements at all because we all think that this is the breakthrough politically that, in fact, it is the breakthrough politically. You're on the other side of midnight. We'll return to our conversation when we return.
Welcome back, everyone, on this uh, Sunday night, soon to be Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. My guests, too numerous to mention, they're on the website. Uh, I believe, Robert, you had the floor. I was talking about the technology and the, um, the Air Force conclusion that they're not aerodynamic vehicles, that they actually are time machines. And the, this goes back to a report that was made in 1946. A German U-boat sailor who sailed from Germany to Japan transporting liquid mercury for one of these projects had uh, several months with German physicists aboard the submarine. And he wrote to General Lucius Clay, who was the in charge of governing Germany after the surrender. And he wrote to him about this conversation that he had with the German physicists. They said that they had developed the technology to create spirit ships that they were able to take a material ship, turn it into spirit so that it could travel without passing through space-time and appear in another place. And that was the first hint that the Germans were working on this hyperdimensional technology. The other thing that he said, which was very interesting, is that they had discovered a way of opening a hole in the atmosphere so that the rays of the sun would beat down on any city designated as their target and just fry it by opening the hole in the atmosphere. His name was Guido Bernardi. Yeah, that was Guido Guido Bernardi was his name. And this is in U.S. Army CIG records that uh, I got through the uh, Black Vault. Oh, I believe you. I just, uh, you know, you know, as well as I do, that would not go well. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's... uh, Go ahead. Sorry. uh, Also, the other thing is, the Roswell crash and the admission, you know, everybody wants to stay focused on the Roswell crash, but the really important crash, which was really a soft landing, was the Aztec UFO that uh, landed in, uh, in Aztec on March 15th of 1948. They did the same thing. The Army realized that they could really pump up the microwave radiation on their radars, and they did bring down the Roswell craft by focusing eight strong radars in West Texas and in New Mexico on them. So they did the same thing with another UFO that they found uh, flying around over there. Uh, and they brought it down. It, it hit a cliff and then made a controlled landing. The impact on the cliff created a crack in the hull. The first people to get to that UFO were oil prospectors and engineers that work for the Hughes Tool Company. They were able to get into it and see a lot of the stuff before the Army uh, arrived. The Army then took over, and they were able to expand the crack in the hull and get inside. And uh, what they describe inside that craft is what's sitting on your desk right now. The laptop computers with the little uh, slide case for the DVD, uh, liquid plasma screens, and all of that was really what went into uh, the uh, reverse engineering that uh, Philip Corso revealed in the day after Roswell. So it's all coming out, and the documents are there, and all of us uh, are going to be seeing them soon. So back to you. Okay. Um, let me see. Uh, Go ahead. Slight follow. Yeah, slight uh, – I'm doing good with a little short bite. This is good. Uh, I have uh, – I have simple I, what what Keith? I have a uh, simple eyewitness report 
of this technology you're talking about at work. I've never mentioned this anyplace, but it's, uh, this seems appropriate. Uh, I'm not that far from the desert bases. You know, I'm not right, night, right next to Area 51 or anything, but the flight path that they use routinely comes over here. I mean, this is still a couple times a week. This is considered an empty air corridor. It's the way that the, that Air Force One gets to San Diego because they don't fly during nor in normal commercial areas. Okay. So one day this, and this is like 15 years ago, uh, a, um, let's call it an F-15 was flying overhead and it started to stutter. And I'm looking right up at it. It's not that high up in the air because they don't have to be around here. And I'm looking at this thing and it's, it's like stuttering through the air. It's just flying along. It's been blink, 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 moving like a, a third of its own length, you know, ahead. Like it was shuddering or say, and it wasn't shaking or making funny noises or anything else, but it was just, it was uh, like a film. So wait, when you say stuttering, you don't mean visibly. Visibly. So it was not it, it was it was jumping like a, on a dotted line, or when you say sputtering, yes. was the engine yeah, no, noise? Jumping. Was it engine jumping. noise, or was it visibly jumping point to point to point along a trajectory? The engine noise was basically unaffected. It was just <clears throat> like you would expect from a jet that was not that far overhead, uh, and uh, but it was just a portion of its length. You know, just a little bit, punk, 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 punk. But it was un, unmistakable. It wasn't my eyes that were uh, that were going wrong. And I thought, oh, interesting. So it was like making these little tiny jumps. And I think they were testing apparatus related to the stuff that Robert was referencing and that Stephen talked or, about. Or the technology really. was malfunctioning. No, actually, I think he's describing uh, probably a, a small test bed of a pulse engine that was described. This thing was hypersonic. It is hypersonic, but it leaves a very unusual trail, which is called donuts on a string. There no, is no, a, it wasn't that, Robert. No, I'm absolutely. saying that it may have yeah. been a test of that technology in a small airframe to see if it could have been applied to a, a, a thing like a, an F-16. No, it, yeah, it was, at a, it was at a low enough altitude, and they do fly this low around here, sometimes that if I held up like three fingers, that would be the length of the plane. Okay. So it was not, you know, it was not some dot way up in the stratosphere. I'm not saying that. You're not understanding what I'm saying. I'm saying. Well, I know, I know about that. I know about that pulse engine, but that's not what this was because the, the, uh, the sound that it made and everything else was perfectly normal. But think of a film that is sticking, you know, it's been patched too many times. And so there's a little bit of overlap in the frames. That's what it was like. That had to be some other technology that was hidden inside the jet and they were just testing it out. And I agree. It was probably it'd be a very uncomfortable flight. It'd be a very uncomfortable flight for a pilot. I don't think any pilot could take that for a very long period of time. I, it wasn't, they, you, you would have had to have seen it. It was, I mean, uh, they could handle it, you know, cause it wasn't, it wasn't well, you don't even know it was, it, you don't even know it was manned. That's, That's a good point too. That's, yeah, it wasn't going at hyperspeed. You know, it was just it was just flying along. It just they, seemed to I mean, be jumping have, ahead. Yes, but only part of its length. You know, if it's three hundred, let's say it's what uh, eighty feet long. Okay, so the jumps would have been twelve feet at a time. 
you know, and I, so it, that's why I mean overlap. And Sounds sort of similar you, kind of thing. Not uh, the whole jet, just part of it. Okay, go ahead. I saw a similar type of thing when I came out on the parking lot, uh, top roof of the parking lot. I heard these jets. I look up. I see a four-engine jet trailing something behind it, and there's like three or four fighters behind it. And I'm saying, oh, they must be doing in-air refueling tests or whatever. And then up in front of them, there's this circular opening in the clouds. And I thought that was kind of unusual. And they go into the circle, and all the sound stops. And I'm expecting them to come out the other side of the clouds, and they didn't. Where the heck did they go? And that that I saw personally, right on top of yeah. the parking lot. I've heard of Well, that sounds places. like a wormhole. It sounds like they went someplace. Yeah, through a door, that, through a portal. The circle, the circular clouds yeah. dissipated, and there was no other sign of the jets. So, well, remember in the, the case of the Tic Tac on radar, it was off the coast of the uh, Guadalupe Islands. There's an exact coordinates they gave where the UAPs vanished out of thin air, and it was um, it was one of the uh, the Navy officers um, who testified that he saw them going in this kind of counterclockwise pattern that looked like a vortex portal, and one by one they vanished. That was Sean Cahill who who said that. I mean, they have a lot of amazing data to suggest they're they're coming in and out. They're they're not going through the atmosphere because that would cause severe burning. And again, your performance data, if it was all organized, which it hasn't been, to the press, it, it would end the story overnight that we're talking about China and Russia. It would end all that, and we would know we're dealing with what exactly David Grush is saying. These are off-world vehicles. We don't know how to do this here yet. And, and the other question is... Wait, 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 wait. I would argue that we don't know how to do it in public but if you get him yeah. in a skiff, he can tell you exactly who's the manufacturer, what exactly. part of Lockheed, who the engineers are, all that stuff that did not come out in the public well, area. Yeah. My friend Boyd Bushman at Lockheed, you know, I've, I've got recordings of my interviews with Boyd Bushman that I've never released, ever. And even recently, in the last two years, Lockheed has contacted me asking to see them. And I, gave, I supplied the tapes through a Google Drive, and all these Lockheed engineers wanted to watch my Boyd Bushman interviews because they wanted to know what Okay, for those of us that don't follow this moment to moment, who is Boyd Bushman? Sounds like Hopalong Cassidy's brother. No, Boyd was a 20 years Lockheed Martin senior scientist, Boyd Bushman. I mean, the, the famous Boyd Bushman tapes. Boyd gave me... So much data in, in two interviews where I went to Texas and interviewed him. He gave me data on the weapon used to take down the Roswell craft. He gave me data on the alien bodies, and which are probably AI. And he gave me data on the propulsion systems, including photographs of air-winged vehicles of ours that are not using the wings. They're just for public display in case the public sees them, but they're using anti-gravity. So the, the truth is we have this stuff. I mean, that's not surprising. But the, the, what everything Grush is saying, exactly what Bass has said tonight is all that has been known by people in the UFO community forever, pretty much. 
So the Bushman tapes that I have that I've never released are, are um, you know, there's something, they're very high quality. They're, there's Bushman also worked for General Dynamics. I mean, see, here's what I think. Would you, if you, David, could you post these on the other side of midnight? Well, we should do a show on it so I could do it properly. Good, good. There was we will do it. Huge cover up about the the alien bodies when Bush. Yeah, David, on the alien bodies, I want to say something. I was going to ask you if you remember. I saw those photographs that he showed of the alien bodies and that uh, you know the little the little creature with the kind of dark spots on his head. People thought that they were a bit phony, but guess no, what? no. Listen, listen. I, I was, I'm a real. photo no, expert. They're real. They're real. Because no, I'll tell you how I found out they're real. First yeah, of all, well, let me tell you first. <laughs> I got a video. I got a video okay. of a guy in Indiana. A guy in Indiana was out. He heard something in the cornfield. He went out with his camera and he started videoing. And he's walking, and all of a sudden, the the corn stalks parted, and that little guy. Uh, that Boyd Bushman had pops out and scared the hell out of this guy. He took off like uh, grease lightning. So that's when I realized. Those so I, I have Bushman gave me the real photographs that were taken at Los Alamos, according to Bushman, not by himself, but someone very close to him, who he calls number two. And when I analyzed What's, this is really how I proved they were real. When, because there was a fake alien that was sold at Kmart that looked similar, and that was part of the effort to dispel the real alien. And when, when you take a picture with a flash camera of an eye, you, if it's paint, you'll get one reflection. This is R- Richard Feynman's strange theory of light and matter. When you stack sheets of glass together and you flash a, a laser at it, you'll get multiple reflections at different time intervals. So when I looked at the photos of the Bushman alien versus the Kmart, and Dan Aykroyd looked at the photos and he sent me the what's called the um, um, this, this Spielberg um, a, a special effects doll that was circulating around Hollywood that looked similar. They only had one reflection off the eye because the eye was painted. But the Bushman alien had multiple stacked reflections coming out of the eye, which right. means it's multi-layered, very sophisticated eye. So I zoomed in on the eye, and that is no painted fake alien. This eye has these little – they look like comets with tails shooting out of the eye as a photoelectric response to the flash when they took the pictures of the alien. And these little commentary um, photoelectric responses are shooting around the room in the photograph. Now, I've given one presentation on this just to see a public response, and people are so stupid, you can trick them so easily. So let's say I have real alien number one, take a picture of them, Um, a fake doll that looks very similar, picture number two, and number three, a, a Hollywood effects doll photo number three. Now, if, you, if you're not a photo expert, you're going to think, oh, the Bushman alien is fake because I see this Kmart doll that looks just like it and don't ever show me this crap again. And, and that's where 95% of your population response goes. It's like, right. no, you've got to do proper photo analysis because a human eye, if you take a flash photograph, which is how these photographs were taken allegedly at Los Alamos, um, then you will get, you know how you get red eye and when you take yes. a picture 
Mm-hmm. That's a that's a reflection from the the liquid um, membrane in uh, underneath the cornea, underneath the surface of the eye, and then you have the iris, which then can reflect and bounce off of the inside of the of the cornea and and the lens, and you'll get a double reflection on a human eye. I've never seen reflections like I see coming out of the the Bushman alien. There's multiple discs coming out of one eye, which means it's a multi-layered aqueous eye. And there's no way. Tell us us about uh, Boyd Bushman's Galileo experiment. You remember that? Oh yeah. So Bushman, okay. So Bushman, just for people, a lot of people know who Boyd Bushman is, um, Richard. We, I, I don't want to go too far into that because we could do that another night. But when Grush said we have alien bodies, I can say that if Bushman made this up or somebody tricked him, this supposed doll that he – I have the pictures here. They're, they're in my house. They're in a FedEx envelope. And – I went. I got them in person from Boyd, and I've got a lot of the photos. I've never put them all out because I think people are too quick to judge. But now that Grush has said this, I'd like to get the photos to him, and 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 my photo analysis of the multiple. See, here's what would happen if you had a dead AI with circuitry that's part living and part artificial intelligence, because really advanced AI would be just that, a doll that it actually can walk and talk. You know, that's what we're going to see, right, with coming with AI. But because it's circuitry and it would have what's called, um, you know, photodiodes. So photodiodes respond to off-on switches in the presence of light, right? So if you put them in the dark, they'll go to sleep. But as soon as, just like humans, the sun's come up, you wake up. So when the flash goes off and I see all these electrical, I mean, I've got one photo where there's this huge jagged green and white and black uh, wave coming out of a flash of red light right at the membrane of the surface of the skull of the AI alien that Boyd gave me. You can't explain this. I mean, I developed film for you know, 20 years as a, as a black and Dave, white. David, I have a very dumb question. Yeah. If all this is so classified that Grush could not talk about the details in an open hearing, how come Bushman could give you these photographs? Why aren't you exactly. in jail? You know why? Why aren't you in jail? Because no one – when Lockheed contacted me recently, which was their – many of their top engineers, Boyd also gave me – the the schematic for the weapon that was used to take down the ET craft and and I never showed it to anybody and so they want they get on this Zoom with me these guys at Lockheed and, and one of them has got a model that he's trying to build of the Bushman weapon used to take down ETs and he's saying did we build it right and I was flabbergasted I was like you guys know this. And, and they're, of course, of course they know it. And like, and they know that I know it. And I'm like, it looks like you, you did a couple of things wrong, according to what Boyd told me. But what Boyd told me was, I will give you a demonstration, David. You can film it. And we're going to send this beam at a old car, an old Chevy car running in a parking lot in Texas. Cause it was, it was summer. It was hot. And he said, we're going to blow the car up. And, and I know exactly how this thing works. It's an antimatter 
weapon that takes apart all the dipoles at an atomic level and atoms are no longer atoms. They vaporize and they merge with antimatter and they annihilate. So, so anyway, this is what Lockheed did. This is in the last two years. They, they spent a lot of time with me. And here's what they said about the alien. They said, we don't want to talk about the alien. I was like, I know you guys don't think it's real because this was from Los Alamos, according to Bushman. And Bushman was a highly decorated, very – the fact that they were contacting me and wanted all my interviews from Boyd tells me they put – he was a high-priority scientist at Lockheed Martin. And if you go on the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, all Boyd's Lockheed patents that are patented, not the ones that are classified. I still don't get how he could give you – Top, top, top secret information, and because he didn't no get arrested, one, and you haven't been either. Because they put out the Kmart doll that looked the same as the as the as the real alien doll, and that dispelled and turned it into a myth that these this isn't the real Roswell alien. So again, people are so stupid. If you look at the, if I showed you, Richard, David, people are not stupid. So They're just not a specialist like you are in photo effects and photography and light levels. It's the same reason that 99.9% of people can look at the photographs of the moon with the moon dome on it, and they don't see a damn thing. They don't get it because they, there's no, they have no background. They're not right. stupid. They're simply areas where our culture needs specialists as opposed to everybody else. Otherwise, we wouldn't learn anything because See, once you get to the point of understanding that we can make AI ourselves, which are dolls that have eyes, that have electronics inside of them and have plasma that might even be green, you can understand Boyd Bushman's doll. It doesn't look like a doll to me. You know why? And, and I think Robert Morningstar, because he's seen one of the photos or a few of them of the alien. You've got to see the one with the big energy wave coming out Obviously of the brain. Obviously, you need to post up. these pictures on the other well, side. Well, send of the them night. to you, Richard, and we'll do a show about well, it, and we'll go put them up as items. But one of the things that interests me is the very dark circles around his eye. Now, if this was a fake... Wait, wait. He is meaning doll, the alien. Wait. The alien. What happens when you see a cadaver that's been sitting there for years is the, the eyes become sullen, the eye sockets become very very bruised and that's what he looks like and when i look at the real one i go there's presence there and i look at the kmart doll that somebody took a picture of in kmart that looks so similar to him you go that has no presence there's no soul there and also it, it okay. also i'll say one more thing about the alien doll i counted the number of color tones in what I, we call the kmart roswell alien Bushman, and it only has three or four colors in the color spectrum. The real, what we call the real one that Boyd Bushman gave me, has hundreds of color hues coming out of the skin, and there's no way they're the same freaking thing. So they duped yeah. the public when these things kind of yeah, came it's out. part of the disinformation cover-up continuity. Robert, is that you? Yeah, no, that's me. me. Oh, Robert, you can have it. I just want to ask this one question before oh, it goes away. I, what about that? What about what happened to what happened to the antimatter death ray that blew up the car? You threw that. Okay, so what happened to it is it became classified. Lockheed was. Can, can, Did you see it? 
Did you see it? What do you mean? I'm the only, I know how to make one until I see it. I know how to make one. So, because Boyd gave me the schematic and he told me this is what he, what Boyd told me, some pretty terrifying stuff. They pointed it up at a passenger Cessna in what? Texas and it took it and knocked it to the ground and they were all dead. And it would oh, just come be. On. No, this is what he told me. I'm telling you what he told me. I'm not saying true or false. I'm saying they didn't okay. even know when they were working on it what it could do. Now, you know the Tesla death rate was um, after Tesla died, January the 7th, 1943. The death rate was transferred to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This is in the Tesla FBI files that, that I have in my possession. And actually, the Tesla FBI files show the death ray going to Wright-Patterson, which is where the Roswell craft ended up. So if that's the weapon that was used to take down the Roswell craft, which is an advanced form of microwaves, and microwaves are generated in a magnetron, and if you know what a magnetron looks like as a schematic, which I do, then you would see the Bushman weapon has similar characteristics in the way it's engineered, but what these Lockheed guys did, and there were three or four of them in the Zoom meetings, is they wanted to know, because they claimed the way they made it, it didn't work, and they were trying to make it. So I was telling them everything I know about how it's made, but there were no further conversations. Okay, we're at they, the top of the hour. We've got one hour left. We've got one hour left. When people want to interject and ask questions, if you would identify yourself, because most of the audience may not know what you sound like. So, Ron, you should say, Ron here, and then ask the question, that kind of thing. So we've got okay. about a minute before, well, less than that. Uh, I'll tell you what, why don't we, everybody just kind of hold it. Um, this is so cool. It is so astonishingly cool that we're talking now about the results of basically an open hearing into realities that for 99% of Americans, to say nothing maybe of the rest of the world, sound like science fiction or a movie or a projected future Oppenheimer or whatever. And in fact, they were witness testimony by three eminent experts, two pilots and one bureaucrat, who in fact was reporting on reports under the Arrow Office specifically brought to us courtesy of the U.S. Congress. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary crap. Calling occupants of interplanetary crap. We are your friends. 
the other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 an episode. Two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this now Monday morning. Sunday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight for the 30th and uh, now 31st of July of 2023. Um, fascinating discussion. Let me introduce something else and that may uh, head everybody off in another direction on this conversation. Um, if you go back to my items and you look at uh, item number five, and earlier this week, Keith brought this to my attention and he said, you really need to talk about this on Sunday night. So here we go. The South Koreans, three scientists have published two papers uh, and the um, uh, literature, the open literature, and they're waiting for peer-reviewed publication in the uh, uh, formal literature regarding their discovery that they're claiming of a room temperature superconductor, the holy grail of physics. Well, the three holy grails would be room temperature superconductivity, which of course is the lossless transmission of electrical energy in circuits where uh, the, the energy never goes away. It, once you start it flowing, it will run and run and run with zero resistance. That's superconductivity. The other one, of course, is anti-gravity, which appears to be the ability with vehicles to negate the pull of gravity, and that's what uh, uh, Paula Violet's book is devoted to extraordinary inside memos and discussions and, and uh, papers and all that, uh, clearly proving that the uh, government, uh, the military, the DOD, has had this technology under, under research and development for countless decades from way before Roswell, from back in the 1930s, if not even earlier. And of course, the third barrier, the third huge MacGuffin, if they ever find it, is the ability to transcend the speed of light. Either uh, relativity is wrong and there's no three-dimensional limit on velocity, or the way you contravene it is by producing wormholes, portals, jump points, whatever you want to call them, and you don't go through normal three dimensions. You go to a higher dimension and then come back to a lower dimension, our dimension, and that is what makes the appearance of jumping or appearing and then disappearing in the sky on some of the videos and, of course, on uh, Jimmy's uh, video uh, basically apparent. So here is what I want to talk about. If this superconductivity breakthrough is real, 
and the room temperature they're talking about is 260 degrees above, uh, you know, freezing, which would, of course, be above the boiling point of water. It means you could have superconductive circuits anywhere, any old time. And if the only limit would be, is the process economically feasible or do you have to spend a billion dollars to get a tenth of a gram of this stuff? The answer in the papers is it's incredibly cheap. It's incredibly easy to mass produce, to scale up. It will change everything if it's real. Since it's so simple and it's based on a compound that uh, consists of lead uh, substituting itself for copper in the matrix, the one thing that occurred to me is that their explanation is that when the substitution of lead atoms for copper in the superconductor takes place, it shrinks the lattice, the geometry of the crystallography of the metal compound, and it becomes, wait for it, tetrahedral. Oh, where have we heard that before? Gosh, they've been flying double tetrahedrons and spheres off the coast of Virginia in a major, you know, aircraft and Navy test range for decades, trying to get us to pay attention to the physics of which the double tetrahedron in a sphere is the lowest common denominator. So let me throw this open because Farver, and maybe I want to go to Stephen on this, Farver said something very interesting, that he'd been told by material scientists that we could not duplicate the tic-tac technology for 10 or 20 years. And I have a feeling that Farver was misled deliberately because frankly, if the technology is what I think it's based on, according to the Violet, we've had it in our toolkit for 70, 80, 90 years. It just has not been used in public. So reaction, who wants to go first? I just want to you forgot the appetite. Well, that's the name of the compound. Yeah, it's a phosphorus compound, and it's uh, also a crystal, which is uh, quadrahedral, which is useful. That's the other half of it with lead. Yeah. And Richard, we've, we've seen that's levitating... All. This is David. <clears throat> yeah, this is David. We've seen levitating mice at MIT with superconducting magnets, and if the I mean, it's hard for people to understand this, but in the past, recent past, they've been able to get with superconducting magnets up to 30 Tesla. And even, a 30 Tesla magnet is so unimaginably powerful that one of my theories about UFOs, because they're shaped like lenses, if you lens the magnetic fields and at the focal point of that, magnetic lens your your magnetism is so powerful you can propel a craft through an atmosphere at unimaginable speed so if these new superconducting room temperature magnets can reach like i can't even imagine one tesla to tell you the truth like when you go into an mri cat scan the new ones are up to six tesla right so and that's unimaginable power like when i was working on can, can you, do you remember his, how str much stronger than the Earth's magnetic field that is? Oh, my God. You're talking millions of times stronger. Millions of times Well, stronger. people need to hear that. The Earth's magnetic field is actually very weak. It, very it's, weak. It's measurable on the surface in, in, in 
thousandths of a Gauss, and there's 10,000 Gauss in one Tesla. So when you're talking... Okay, the Earth's field and the, and the surface is about half a Gauss. Yeah. So that's about 5,000 times smaller than one Tesla in an experiment, right. and you're saying they've got up now to six times six Teslas? Well, see... When Maglitch was doing helium-3 fusion and I was, you know, assisting and I was around Seaborg and all those guys, he was using six Tesla magnets and nearly attained nuclear fusion energies. But now we're up to 30 Tesla with superconducting magnets. So the implications of room temperature superconductivity means you can have room temperature superconducting 30 Tesla magnets, and what you can do with that is unimaginable. In fact, the well, the, the it, wait, wait, it, it, it's not unimaginable. I have in a safety deposit box because it was sent to me, and for a while it sat on my dining room table. And then I got smart and I put it away so nobody but me can get to it. A functioning space engine based on superconductivity, which is a reactionless drive, no fuel needed can go from here to Alpha Centauri or to Andromeda in whatever time it takes without one amount of fuel needed because it taps into hyperspace, hyperdimensions through the magnetic field. If a room temperature superconductor is readily available, it will totally revolutionize every NASA mission it has ever envisioned, including the one to Saturn, to Saturn's moon uh, Titan, which is going to, to carry basically a large version of a drone with uh, rotors to fly around in the Titan atmosphere. It's going to take them a decade and a half to get there under normal rocket power. They could be there in, in 10 days if this superconducting engine can function with a room temperature superconductor. So we literally are on the threshold commercially, publicly, of doing what Ben Rich said we already could do, which is take E.T. home. See, everything is magnetic. I mean, hydrogen's magnetic, everything's magnetic in a magnetic field, whereas your rare earths like your iron and your nickel and your neodymium can be permanent magnets. When, you, when you're in a magnetic field, so here we are, MIT Technology Review, levitating mice at 17 Tesla. So, again, that's a lot of power, right? And that's because the calcium in your bones will be attracted to a 10 Tesla magnet like crazy. I mean, I've got strong neodymiums here, and I can get a piece of silver, and I can get a good reaction off of silver. When you move a magnet against the silver, it, it, it attracts because silver is... I think so. You have paramagnetism. Di paramagnetism is attraction. Diamagnetism is repulsion, and then you have ferromagnetism, which is permanent attraction and repulsion of like fields. Right. So, if you think of um, uh, uh, the, the guy in Snowflake, Arizona, who was levitated up into the spacecraft, um, Travis Walton, right? And you think of these levitating mics at MIT. And you think, well, what's, what's attracting the mice in the magnetic beam is 17 Tesla on their bones. And their bones will, the, the material in the bones, which is phosphorus also, and it's also calcium and it's, it's collagen, 
But all, everything has a magnetic property in a magnetic field. So therefore, you can magnetize a human body and levitate it up in a beam, just like the stories of the levitating cows. And now you've got the levitating moose in this new film that came out, 411, with these ETs up in Montana that are, you know, craft or levitating moose, and they're taking them away. It's all very feasible now. But when you have superconducting room temperature magnets, you can build propulsion with in these magnetic fields. And because it's it's um, see, normally you had to have super super cold um, temperatures to get conduct superconductivity. Superconductivity, super, yeah. Yeah, superconductivity is if I run electricity through copper wire, which is not superconductivity, 90 degrees to the wire, you get your magnetic field. Now, when you have no resistance to the movement of current through a material, you have no magnetic field, um, but you but you can create a magnetic field, but you have no resistance, which is incredible to have no resistance. If you have no resistance, you have no energy loss. Yeah, just, no just, energy just, loss. Just one caveat. Normally, superconducting magnets have an upper limit to the strength of the magnetic field they can uh, contain before the superconductivity breaks down and it reverts to normal conductivity. And if there's a lot of energy in, in the coil or the wire or the circuit, they can literally explode like, like uh, you know, 10 sticks of dynamite depending upon the experiment or the or the use we do not yet know the magnetic limit on this so-called new super uh, room temperature superconductor if it's high it has extraordinary uses if it's relatively low it will have fewer uses but it still will transform technology so it's going to be interesting to see what the what the follow-on experiments that are trying to prove these guys don't know what they're talking about is going to reveal. And given that it's so simple to make, we should have results probably within the next, you know, few weeks, a month, whatever. Let me go back to mm-hmm. the, the larger conversation. Does anybody want have anything they want to bring up apropos of the hearing that we haven't covered yet, starting with Stephen? Uh, I hear it. I, you know, I just, I, I don't know. I think. Uh, wait a minute. Hang on. Steve, what's uh, going to happen with Grush's, you know, um, provocation to have these behind closed doors hearings? Do you know anything about that? Not a provocation. Uh, he he made it clear that there were quite a few questions that he would respond to, and it's up to the committee to. To arrange for those private briefings, classified briefings, and I assume they will. Uh, and what will th- that will simply add more information to the committee's knowledge base. Uh, believe me, there have been briefings going on for three and a half years. The amount of information is probably now known to a very substantial number of members of Congress is quite large. They are carrying around in their head a great deal. Uh, and so... Uh, let's just say that whatever's going to happen next, you're going to surprise anybody. I mean, most of them are probably in, in, in the business of. Well, what, what, what I heard during the hearing from Burchett, he said this hearing, he said specifically, I'm going to paraphrase, is designed to craft legislation 
for transparency and declassification of things that are overclassified. And I have a feeling that's going to wind up in the current NDAA when all is said and done for 2024, which will probably be voted on by the end of the year. So six months after that is voted on, some of these transparent items that Grush could only say were classified may become open secrets in the general media. Uh, none of those time frames have any meaning at all. Tell me why. Tell me why. It's protocol. It's like we're going to settle, you know, do this by then, by this, by then, by whatever. But as I've said a thousand times, this is not about uh, explaining this phenomena. It's not about finding out about this phenomena. It's about just ending the truth embargo. Uh, what's the truth embargo's end? Well, all of these other time frames could be. But put how in do you place. define ending a truth embargo? Are you waiting for the president? It's, the, the definition of ending the truth embargo is, in fact, the president's confirmation. And you're saying that, by the end of September he will do it? I am saying that based on the time frame that I'm seeing unfold, somewhat delayed by the fact that they're in recess, there's nothing preventing Warner from conducting a, a, a major hearing in front of the Senate Intel in September. And if they do it correctly and they bring in the witnesses that we know have been interviewed, Two weeks of that, and it's game over. I mean, the president will have no choice but to not be forced, but rather to concede that what he is. So wait, wait. When you say game over, Grush sat there and said, "I can't tell you all this cool stuff unless we have a classified hearing or we're in a skiff." How do you know that's not going to also happen to the Senate? What will change legally to allow people to testify in open session? that which is now currently classified. You remember what I said about the, the trick about this? If somebody asks somebody like that, uh, do you, uh, are extraterrestrials visiting the planet Earth? And the response is, I can only discuss that in private session. That is a yes. It's a yes in your mind, but in the American people, broad understanding, is it simply going to mean, oh, there's details I can't know and it doesn't mean a yes or a no. It just means it's, there are details. No, I think be, anybody with half a brain or a kindergarten education will take it as a yes. Okay. All right. Just it will be a things. yes in the mind of virtually every person in the entire military intelligence complex, the entire Congress, their staff. But let me, let me go further. What will be testified to in public without getting into any, quote, I can't talk about that except in private session – will be more than enough in that Senate intel committee to end the truth embargo. And so based on that projection, unless Warner, right. uh, then, then the president will, will ha- be in a position. This is what this has all been about. It's to get the position where the president can confirm the ET presence. The whole thing is about that. The creation of arrow, the legislation, none of this is about trying to figure this out. They already know what it is. This is a setup. It's a setting up of the scaffolding that will allow a formal thing to happen, which is the confirmation event from the president. Then we're in the post-disclosure world. I, and just, all I, I just want to know what the difference will be between Grush in front of the House and an unknown set of witnesses in front of the Senate, let's say at the end of the recess in a month, six weeks, whatever. What will have changed legally to where People can sit and openly admit. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying, Dick. 
I'm saying that, first of all, there won't be one grush. There'll be 12, 15 grushes. Secondly, uh, what I'm saying is, is that there will undoubtedly be a number of questions that have to be responded to with, I cannot talk about that, right? Uh, but what will be able to be said under oath just publicly will be more than sufficient to make it easy for the president to say, yep. Sorry got, to be a me. pain, Steve. But what will, what will have changed? In other words, nothing. Then how can they say anything that means anything? No, 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 no. no if no, they wait, simply wait, do wait, a grudge on whoa, steroids, whoa. then it will be at the same status quo ante. All right, I'm sorry, Richard, sorry, Richard has a point. He has a point. What's uh, the no, no, he doesn't have a point. Let me let me state this very then clearly. gently. Tell me why. Grush in the in the in the testimony that he made publicly. He said there's non-human technology in our possession. He said publicly we have bodies. And many other things were said publicly right. there that were very potent. Okay, stop in there, addition, stop there, hold it, hold it, hold it. Finish, hold it. God damn no, it. I need to ask this question. If what he said on the record and his innuendo, well, I can't talk about that publicly, as Barbara said, most people, bright people, will it say this as is an admission – Right. Then why didn't Biden hold a damn press conference this week? Because What's he waiting for? Is, because those three witnesses is not enough. The committee is so not right. So that's your opinion that it's not You're enough. just not going to let me answer this question, are you, Dick? You're not answering the question, Steve. No, I am exactly. answering the question. That committee is not the intel committee. Who cares? They're, They're legal three. representatives of the people of the United States. You seem to have this preoccupation with the Senate like the House doesn't count. The House is where every money bill originates. Without the House, there's no money to do any Buck Rogers. So why is it? Why is Could it? everybody please let Steve finish the spot? Well, he's not finishing it, Barbara. Well, I can't finish it. Why he's pressing it. Go. You're all interrupting him. Ron, let him talk. Stop interrupting, please. Initial legislation that began the legislative process is by the Senate Intel Chair Rubio. The second legislation that carried this forward process was under the Senate Intel under Warner, but the language was from Gillibrand, a former presidential candidate, as was Rubio. The third uh, uh, legislation that was put in was put in by Warner, the chairman now of the Senate Intel Committee. The most recent significant development came from Charles Schumer, who basically says, I'm putting language in the next bill, which makes it clear that any non-human technology belongs to the United States, and we want an accounting of it. Senate, 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 Senate. Furthermore, we know that the Senate Intel Committee has, has interviewed a substantial number of witnesses. And Arrow has also interviewed them. They are being interviewed for the Senate Intel hearing, not for the House. Now, the House can do what the hell it wants, and maybe it can do so much stuff that it'll trigger the president's action. But I say it's not going to happen that way. It's going to happen Okay, so this is your projection based that on is your... my projection. Okay, yeah. I just want to get this on the record. Nothing okay. is written in stone. It's your educated opinion. Yeah. But it could and, be wrong uh, tomorrow. So, yeah, and it could be right. The point is, is that what, what, what we do know, which is not opinion, is that, that the witnesses, the types of witnesses that have been interviewed, 
and pretty much what they're going to say. And we know the legislation that's been passed and who passed it. That's not conjecture. That's what happened. And if you look at the way the whole house thing went down, it was messy. It was put together quickly. It was awkward. They they were not the the right committee to do this, but they had the right to do it. All right. But when you talk about the Senate Intel, a whole nother ballgame. Plus, the Senate Intel Committee, those members have the highest clearance there is in terms of Congress. So does the House. Uh, I'm saying that the Senate Intel Committee has the highest clearances, higher than uh, other other committees and other members of other committees. It's numero uno. Now, the House Intelligence Committee mm. is also important. And the House Intelligence Yes, Committee I would disagree with that, Stephen. It, well, feel free. Well, you can't have two branches of the same Congress oh, who have yes, different access to classified material. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. silly. Of course they don't. The House is equal to the Senate. The House is oh, under Republican right. control. The Senate you're is talk- under Democratic control. You're talking the Republicans about- wanted to go first. I don't see them waiting patiently to do the next shoe and the next shoe and the next shoe. They've got the bit in their teeth, and they're going to go for it. So I think that buttresses your idea that we don't have to wait six months or a year or whatever. Things are going to happen very quickly. But I would bet they're going to be on the House side, not the Senate side. And I'll bet they're going to be in the Senate side. Okay? Well, there okay. you go. It's an easy bet. Ron, did you have something you wanted to ask? Uh, yes. When you're talking – no, not ask. Just uh, my comment there. Uh, we're talking politicians here, and this is all starting to, for some reason, bring up the ghost of the kingfish. This is like this is like Boss Hogg on the um, uh, Dukes of Hazards. He's talking to his sheriff, he gets – well, I'm not only going to give you 15%, I'm going to give you 30% of 15%. That's what they're doing. They're parsing the subject to death. Just come out and say it. Trot out a ship. As far as international tensions and everything else, if we have this technology, if we have anything that works, and we just bring it out and say, hi, look what we've got, and you'll never figure out what facility it's being worked on within – but don't give us trouble. Uh, the, this will not precipitate a nuclear war or anything else. It will just get it the hell over with so that we can start designing planes that don't fall out of the sky as easily. Maybe even build those hoverboards that they had in the <laughs> uh, Back to the Future movie from the uh, – some. well, that's what these guys in Korea that, uh, that came up with this yeah. room temperature superconductor are looking for. Their, uh, the Meissner effect is all they're after, which is the – strange habit that uh, uh, superconductors have. Well, it gives you reactionless space drives, field. too. I don't think they know that. Yeah. Oh, maybe. I don't know. I haven't talked to them. In fact, they don't, They haven't even gotten peer-reviewed. They put their stuff up on a on one on the preprint server. Yeah, the one up here in Los it. Alamos. XRV, AXR, AXIV. I call it Archive. I don't just so I can remember what I'm talking how to spell it. But yeah, the um, but they're they're you know they're handing it out freely, and I appreciate that. And it's the South Koreans who are very very good at that stuff. So um, you know we'll see what happens. But um, it's yeah, somebody has to make something. I mean, now, when they well, make a bar, when they make a Barbie doll that can fly, all of a sudden the technology will be public. Yeah, let me go back to Steve because yeah. I do want to support him on one thing. Please. If 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 this was a level playing field. 
I would say it would be the House that would be this. But the fact is that it's the Senate. I agree with you, Steve. Odds are on the Senate will do it because Biden was a senator for 30, 40, whatever years. And he's watching the Senate, not the House. Again, uh, I can't speak for that. I just know that within the Congress, there are hierarchies. Uh, and the Senate intel sits first at the top of the hierarchies in terms of intelligence. Now, you get into appropriations, it obviously it's not the same thing. But once you get into national security, in terms of the congressional side, congressional uh, uh, government, that intel, Senate intel is it. This is the highest priority, most classified issue in the United States government. It is extraordinarily sensitive, and therefore it is the purview of, that, of the Senate Intel Committee to move this forward, which they have been doing. However, the House has certain prerogatives. They just exercise one of those prerogatives. That's fine. They're not going to get a chance to exercise another one, if I'm correct, uh, as Warner will move very quickly. In the moment that he announces the Intel Committee, any other committees can announce all the hearings they want. They're I agree. Okay, happen. we're at the bottom of the hour. Everyone hold it there. We have a spirited discussion going on, and we're still a half hour to go. Gosh knows what we might talk about in the next half hour. Here on the other side of midnight, we're discussing, analyzing, reacting to the literally mind-blowing hearings held by the House, the Republican-controlled House, the House Oversight Subcommittee, um, which has been very positively received by media around the world. And I think Steve and I would agree on this. That's the ultimate litmus test because if the press, if the media had dumped all over the hearings, other potential whistleblowers like Grush would have probably been cowed. In fact, the water seems to be warm and it's very inviting, and they've all been invited now to go swimming. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, back for one last half hour on the historic UFO house hearing of July 26, 2023. Back in a flash. The side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Thank you. 
And welcome back, everyone, on this uh, Sunday night, now Monday morning, here in the Land of Enchantment. My very interesting and interested guests are arrayed for this last half hour. Uh, if you want to join us, if you want to actually ask a question, let me do this. Let me give you the phone number where you can actually dial in, and we'll put you on the air. Uh, 917-889-8802. If you have a question or a comment or you watch the hearing and you have something wildly at variance to what we said, 917-889-8802. You should have this by your phone or your computer or whatever. 917-889-8802. So let me go back to our panel. Who wants to say something that has not had a chance? Robert here. Robert, go for it. Yeah, I'd like to connect a couple of dots and possibilities. Uh, Ryan Graves talked about a sphere that had a cube in it that was at times appeared black and other times appeared gray. You talked about a superconducting material that involves lead. And David uh, described uh, gamma Gamma rays. Well, it's, it's the geometry of the lattice, not so much the yeah. material, but it's the geometry, stupid, yeah. that, uh, you know, yeah. James, well, James Carvel. Yeah. The point is, the lead may be one of the elements in that cube. Next, I want to ask David to see if he has an explanation for this. The Aztec crash, which was recovered March 15th, 1948, was completely disassembled. It had a crack in it. They were able to look inside. It had a double hull. When they got into the bottom of it, they found a compartment that had uh, bodies frozen in it. I'll talk about that later. One of them was an alien, and it was liquid nitrogen. But the point I want to ask David about is this strange phenomenon. The thing had a central column, which is basically a spindle, when that thing was removed, they removed it from the craft and they laid it horizontally. When they laid it horizontally, it disabled all their electrical equipment. And then they put it up vertically and all the electrical equipment worked again. So they had, were forced because of that phenomenon to transport that column spindle, what I call the spindle, uh, in a vertical position. Do you have any idea what would be doing that? Why, when it was horizontal, would it disable all the electrical equipment, but when it was vertical, the electrical equipment would work? Well, I'm trying to think of the orientation of the magnetic field, and, and if, again, you have to study the properties of materials, and I, I have a, a list of every element on the periodic table and its magnetic property because everything becomes magnetic in a magnetic field. But if you switch off the magnetic field, only your, your um, ferromagnetic rare earths will remain magnetic. So if you, if you turned it on its side, I'm thinking of it as a transmitter like an antenna, it would become horizontal to the earth plane and the earth Tesla Schumann resonance that's vibrating around the planet at the speed of light all the time. It, it might have something to do with the Schumann residents interacting with it. it. It's clearly one thing we're missing in in the instrumentation that the pilots have that Ryan Graves has described. We got flare cams 
The flare cams are not as good as what David Mason has. We don't have any data on magnetic field strength, so these planes need meters. And in the case of the of the spiral that you're talking about, you know, going vertical and horizontal, you would need meters that are sensitive up to 30 Tesla. Those aren't easy to get. But if I saw gammas and I saw gamma readings, and I, which you can get with David Mason's flare cams, because he's getting gamma readings when these things come into the atmosphere and when they leave, that's consistent with antimatter. So when, when matter and antimatter, proton, antiproton, meet each other, they annihilate and emit gammas. And you can use gammas to to create antimatter, which is very, right now, like it costs $60 billion to get a tiny, tiny little tip of a teaspoon of antimatter. And an antimatter weapon that size would be equal to 40 kilotons, which would double Hiroshima and Nagasaki's, um, you know, TNT equivalent. So the the... The evidence of how they're doing it is in the metallurgy, the magnetic field testing of the different metallurgies, and the combination of the different metals, as in what Richard presented tonight with the new superconductivity of lead, copper, phosphorus. I think I, I read the article quickly. And again, it's, there's not a, it's not that when they do the, the metallurgy on these crash retrievals like at Aztec and Roswell that you'll necessarily see an element that doesn't exist on the periodic table, but what you'll see is a compound and a composite layering of materials that we've never well, seen. Well, David, before. do you? Well, actually, we have. Remember Arts Parts? Right, that's what I mean. That Linda yeah. Moulton House could only be produced in zero gravity, a space manufacturing. Hey, we got a bunch of people who are calling in. Uh, let's see what they have to ask or say, okay? Area code 708, you are on the air. You're on the air. Maybe 708 is just listening. They've been on hold for like 35 minutes. Yeah, I think they're just listening. Okay, so uh, we'll do this. Area code 727, you're on the air. Yes, uh, I would like to know if one of the people... Can you give us your first name, please? Oh, this is Stephen in Clearwater. Hi, Stephen. I would like to know if if they did retrieve any bodies or anything, are there any safety precautions they would have have taken to prevent any biological contamination to the human race? I mean, you're going to be dealing with totally new things. I mean, we'd have absolutely no immunity to... Yes. Uh, well, at Roswell, no apparent, no extraordinary uh, precautions were taken, and uh, several doctors died. Uh, the bodies were decomposing, and uh, it was a rather horrible smell. The uh, it was very, it was rather tragic, uh, both on a physiological level and a psychological level. Uh, several of the doctors that uh, handled the bodies died at the Roswell uh, incident, and two MPs that were set to guard the bodies committed suicide. With regard to the Aztec, that's a very interesting question because when they went down to the bottom of the craft, they found uh, certain chambers that were filled with bo- had bodies in them and liquid nitrogen, and they thought obviously these bodies were dead. So wait, 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 wait. They- that sounds like cryo suspension. Yes, it is. It was. But it turns out 
They didn't recognize it. So they, they thought out one of the bodies thinking it was a dead body uh, being preserved. But when the liquid nitrogen uh, dissolved, uh, they saw the, the alien moved spasmodically and it was alive. But they, they thought him out too quickly and atmospheric pressure just slammed him and bruised him and died. So the next one they thought out more gradually and they were able to uh, extract a living alien who was quite intelligent and had facility with the English language and he was designated an ambassador uh, of this uh, alien nation and remained for two years while they made contact with uh, his parent race and thereby began the negotiations for that treaty that uh, Barbara and I are discussing a secret treaty. Robert, you realize, of course, you've said 15 amazing things in about 30 seconds, and I don't have time to ask you how you know any of this. So when we do when we do the Boyd Bushman show, you'll come on and you'll talk about sourcing to the extent that you can, because, again, we like to document on this. See, that's the, the issue of the brush kind of um, beckoned us with is what are the different levels of classification and where are the different bases where they're holding all this stuff. I met with Glenn Seaborg at, at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab when, you know, before he died and told him about my UFO sighting in Berkeley in 1968. And he took me very seriously. And his assistant, Albert Giorso, who's, and, and of course, Seaborg is part of the Manhattan Project, by the way, and he was the head of the Atomic Energy Commission under Dr. The Glenn Seaborg. Yeah, I knew him and and spent time with him and got to ask him about UFOs. Now, here's what's interesting is his assistant told me, Giorso, and Giorso was so brilliant, it's unimaginable as far as the the hunting for super massive, super heavy energetic particles. He told me Seaborg had 37 levels above top secret. I'll never forget that. (laughs) I'm sitting at the Berkeley lab with Magwitch and Seaborg and Giorso, and they're all dead now. And I knew Magwitch very well. And so 37 levels. So, And Seaborg told me that in those 37 levels, he has no knowledge of anyone operating in the U.S. government with anti-gravity. So he, he told me those craft that I saw were definitely not ours. And they all, you also have to take into account when Seaborg was doing the testing. Which means at, people have to read Paul LaViolette's damn book. Right. So there are 37 levels. So just imagine 37 different levels. Where is Grush? What level is he at? Do those levels even exist anymore? Because that would have been in Seaborg's day, right? But the day I met him at Berkeley was probably one to two years before he died. So it's not really that long ago. So theoretically, those levels still existed. Unless he was gently in a very physical kind of way, pulling your leg because the fine structure constant is 1.37. And Feynman said it was the most amazing enigma in all of known physics. So Seaborg could have basically been telling you he can't tell you. Yeah, exactly. And that's true too. But yet he, when, when I told him about my sighting, I said this lab would have had a perfect view of it because it happened in the district of Albany, which is Kitty Corner to Berkeley, and the lab is up on the hill. Later, I met a scientist who worked in the space lab at the Lawrence Berkeley lab, and he said in 1972, 
the full staff of the lab witnessed a UFO right outside the big windows of the lab. So that's only a few years later, like 68 to 72. And of course, it's a nuclear lab. And at Livermore, there's a particle accelerator. So you always see these. It, like, look, look at the 1952 sighting over the U.S. Capitol. That's only months before the detonation of the hydrogen bomb, which was in November of the same year. And Roswell, of course, is is just a two years within the same vicinity as Trinity, right? So you see a, one thing we know about antimatter is gamma rays are associated with creating antimatter and they're associated with it, uh, um, um, antimatter and matter annihilation. So when you detonate an atomic bomb, you have a huge release of gammas. And when you're working in these particle accelerators, you see antimatter appear at very high like when you accelerate protons to 99% the speed of light and they collide, you'll see anti-electrons, which are positrons, and anti-protons. Well, the antimatter question has gotten a lot deeper in physics recently in that they, physicists now believe, based on old data, that there are whole anti-planets, anti-solar systems, anti-galaxies, anti-people. And they're, the newest studies on antimatter, and these are very new, is it appears to be anti-gravitic when it comes to our side of the, of the of the portal or the fence, and that may be how they're doing it. It may literally be some form of stable antimatter. Like if you, if you spin your electron, you and I were getting into this in the last show, Richard, about the you know the 19.5 and the 591 being mirror opposites yes, of yes. each other. And yeah. we we should probably do that when we do the Oppenheimer show. Because I've got some amazing new data to compliment Barbara and Robert, so we'll announce all that. We've got some more calls. Let's go to some more calls. Stephen, was that it? Uh, that's it for this week, Richard. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Okay, area code seven five seven. You are on the air. Sign in, please. Well, can you hear me? We can hear you. Get close to the mic. Oh, you're very far away from your mic. You're very far from the mic. You need to get closer, a lot closer. Can you hear me? Much better. Much better. Okay. So I'm in Virginia Beach, and I bought a copy of the Washington Post today. And buried in the very back of the Sunday paper was, you know, this about the the hearing that the UFO hearing, and I was really disappointed that it was then buried in the back of the newspaper. Meanwhile, you know, we got a four-page spread about transgenderism, you know? Like, that only gets talked about every day. But, you know, we got the biggest story in the history of humanity taking place, and it's some opinion piece that gets buried in the back of the newspaper. And I'm just really irritated about that. And I'm kind of sad that, did Stephen just sign off? No, Stephen's here. I'm going to assign him to answer because I think okay. he has, I think he has the perfect answer. Stephen, go. Okay. Stephen, unmute. The Washington Post has been behind the curve 
they a very awful article was written by one of their reporter consultants from Georgetown University, which I commented on. Uh, they did do an article, UFO Congress hearing was insulting to U.S. employees, a top Pentagon official says. I'm not sure where that was uh, 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 where that was posted, but they also did another piece, Aliens Are Among Us, and they want to impeach Biden. So I would concur. <laughs> the Washington Post uh, that, that was is, the title that I read, yeah. Washington Post has really not handled this well. Um, and Do you think uh, it's be because Bezos is not behind this? I look. They have done some good articles, but uh, so it's not like they can't do good articles on this. Um, uh, there's another one though. UFO reports demand greater transparency. Lawmakers say that Washington Post. So, but they're they're definitely downplaying it, right? And they're allowing some some nonsense to be put in there. I'm also tracking the New York Times. These are the two major papers. Uh, Wall Street Journal was just dabbling a little bit too. These are the three major papers, by and large. And this story is so huge, with so many implications, that I just know the publishers are going, we're not doing anything until we've really got something. We don't want to get caught up in the wake of all this, because there's massive coverage coming from every direction. Some of it is uh, you know, good, some of it's not good. It's intense. It's like a media frenzy. And they don't want to step into that frenzy. When they do step into it, uh, it will be serious stuff because this is the biggest news story of all time, and they're not idiots down there at the post. Now, the New York Times just got a big dog in this fight because they started it off with those December 16, 17 articles in 2017, and they feel like they kind of own this in a way. And so I expect them to maybe uh, be a little stronger a little sooner. But the post is going to lag on this, and I have, believe me, I have given them hell. I have talked with Ashley Parker, I've done everything I can to offer my help and assistance and whatever, and they just want to hang back. Uh, and if they had treated the Watergate thing this way, Nixon would have served out his term. <laughs> if they had treated the pension, you know, the Pentagon Papers this so way, do Daniel, you think this is Daniel the, would have died at present. So what? do you think this is simply because they really can't bring themselves to believe this is real, or they're no. waiting for the overwhelming public approbation of many more witnesses over in the Senate, the primo Senate Intelligence Committee. In other words, they're covering their political asses. Not, that's not, I don't see it quite that way. Uh, let me rephrase this. Uh, this. This is probably the best interpretation. Uh, no paper is more dependent upon contacts in the Pentagon, in the agencies, intelligence, all of this stuff. No paper is more dependent upon all of these contacts. Than the Washington Post. They have all of these contacts, and that's how they get the information to go to source and everything else, and allows to keep on top of all Somebody's stuff. moving their <laughs> mic. Stop moving your mic. You're making noise. Uh, to, to, uh, to be the political paper of the United States. And so they know that if they don't handle this right, a lot of those contacts will suddenly not be available. Oh, so it's so so. Hang on, hang on. So it's the NASA problem because back when I was a beat reporter for CBS covering NASA, many reporters would not ask hard questions of NASA because the people in charge of the press corps at JPL 
would have thrown them out and not given them credentials. So you're saying the Post is trying to protect sources so they're on the inside when when not the, protect sources. Well, protect can, their can, access can, to sources can can, um, can um, conserve. Access yeah, yeah, okay. to sources, yeah. because if they piss off, uh, you know, uh, various entities and various departments, suddenly their phone calls don't get returned, and that that may explain it as best as anything I can put out there. But I assure you, the posts will eventually come in, and they'll come in with something big. I'm going to assume they've got some reporters or some of their top investigators out there looking for something big, something very strong, very powerful, to break a major story. But until then. They're dropping these little thingies, and a couple of them are truly embarrassing, and I actually tweeted about one of them. Uh, it was just so awful. Uh, but you know, these, it was an opinion piece. Well, no, it wasn't an opinion piece. It was a. It was one of their contributors from uh, Georgetown University. I, I feel bad for her. She's embarrassed herself, but she probably doesn't know it. But you know, there's a lot of ways that things get into a paper. There's different editors, different whatever, and things kind of just come in. You've got people inside the post that are biased against this issue. They may do an opinion piece or let one in. So you get you don't you don't judge a paper's coverage by one or two articles. You judge it by the totality. At my print media archive, I have scores and scores and scores of articles there already linked from the Washington Post and the New York Times. And I encourage people to go there. When was Robert, the last year? Go ahead, Robert. Robert. Here. Go ahead, Robert. I think, I think Richard is right. It's more of a cover-your-ass situation. The Washington Post, along with the New York Times and the other major news sources, have been lying to the American people for 70 years. And to come out now and admit that UFOs are real, as we know they are, they will be admitting that either they were lying or they were wrong, and they can't Well, wait, wait, wait. There, there is a uh. historical precedent as someone who likes history. Remember, it was the New York Times editorial, blatant editorial against Goddard, which drove him from Massachusetts all the way to New Mexico to do the experiments way out here. Right. Decades later, after Neil and Buzz walked on the moon, the New York Times forthrightly withdrew their condemnation of Goddard in a very public fashion. So, Robert, you may see something quite amazing yeah. in terms of the mea post. Culpa. Yeah. <laughs> mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. But they're not ready to do that. They're not ready to start speaking loud. Not yet, not yet, yeah. not yet. No. But I think Stephen is right. The yeah. weight of the evidence, and more importantly, gentlemen and lady. By the way, Barbara, we haven't heard from you in a while. Please come back. Uh, I think is going to make it imperative that they get on the right side of this new religion. And there will be various mea culpas in very elegant uh, art forms of political, you know, triple speak. But the, the role of journalism is not to admit uh, it is to cover and report, okay? Its its job is not to, oh, we're going to confirm the ET presence. It's to cover what is going on and cover it legitimately and do investigations if necessary. Uh, and that's And they are doing that, and they have done that. They're not doing it quite at the level that's called for. Though certainly the New York Times is, is is up to that level now, the Post has always lagged a little bit behind. And and but it's not like they're ignoring it, and it's not like uh, they haven't covered it. They've done scores of articles, but they're and, and I believe the reason they're lagging is because they have a they really do have an enormous dependence on their access to people throughout the military intelligence complex. And so if any paper is going to piss anybody off, they don't want it to be them. Now they could turn around tomorrow. 
and 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 suddenly go full go full bore on this. I, I hear Barbara. Jesus. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah Stephen, um, has Leslie Keen published anything since the original article? Oh yeah, several pieces. Uh huh. In fact, she she and Ralph Blumenthal were the ones that uh, the crush went to to try to get his story into a major paper, and they went to the Post, and they went to the New York Times, and both papers passed. I think they may have gone to a couple of the network news, and they passed. Uh, and part part of the reason for that. Probably the reason for that was that the Grush wanted something right now. In other words, we got to get this out. We got to get it out now. Will they do it? And 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 this is too big a story for them to do on short notice. And so they passed. And so they went to the debrief, which you could do it. They did a pretty good job, and they did news station. They got the story out, which then drops it in the lap of the New York Times and the Washington Post. A little embarrassing. And so they're we we we've gotten so used to instantaneous stuff, meaning something happens, boom, I want to cover it, boom, bam, boom. It isn't that way. The bigger the story, the more complicated it is for any major paper, the more risk, the more liability, the more lawyers involved. <laughs> and so uh, don't be surprised if it takes time for them to get it together. Well, but understand in, that in, for most of the last 70 years, in, they weren't in, doing much, and now they're really covering it. In terms of our caller who was upset and disappointed in the post, mm-hmm. Helene Cooper, I think, works for The Times, right? Yes. Okay. She covers DOD, Pentagon, all that. She's really good. She was on uh, our Ari Melber like a year ago, as this was just beginning with the first NDAAs and you know the movement on the legislative front. And she said forthrightly on live television, "When this is unveiled, I want to be your UAP UFO reporter." <laughs> this is Helen Cooper on on NBC. Her. Well, I wish Julian Barnes of the Washington Post would feel the same way. I, I, I would like to see the Post and the New York Times competing for this story like they did over the uh, – They will. Pentagon Eventually, papers. they will have to. Yeah. And Otherwise, all them, the I have an office is... just down the street from them for crying out loud. <laughs> Call plug. me, Post. Okay, guys, we are literally down to the last minute. Anybody have anything pungent they want to say that they didn't get three hours to say, and we'll do it again? Just I'd very like briefly, um, Steve – uh, you were there with Danny Sheehan, who, after all, represented the New York Times in the Pentagon Papers case. Yeah. Of all people, he should be able to figure out how to get those two papers to compete with one another. <laughs> oh, I can do it myself. Thank you. Uh, I, I will say that uh, Danny is hip deep in this issue and getting deeper all the time. He is back big time, and uh, I, nothing could please me more. I love Danny Sheehan. Me too. What? I wanted to clarify for Richard, as far as sources are concerned, the information I gave you about the Roswell uh, buddies and the death of the doctor, suicides of the MPs, came from the official report of the U.S. Army CIG group called the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit. And the information I gave you about the Aztec crash and the recovery of the alien bodies comes from an MJ-12 briefing document. Super! Hey, thanks, everybody. Um, Our guests, too numerous to mention tonight. Go to the website to see what uh, transpired, who was here, what their backgrounds are. We're obviously going to do this again. Next Saturday, we're probably going to do the Indian mission to the moon. Have to check with Chandra first. That means that the Oppenheimer program will probably be Sunday. Have to check with uh, Barbara and Robert on that. So until next week... Stay tuned, and remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everybody, and keep looking up.